killed all 73 people on board, Posada escaped in 1985, reportedly with financial and logistical support from Jorge Masconosa. Using the alias Ramon Medina, he joined the Reagan administration's operation supplying arms to the Nicaraguan Contras in violation of U.S. law. In the late 1980s, he worked as a security official for the Guatemalan government and began plotting a new campaign of violent attacks on Cuban targets. In February 1990, unidentified gunmen shot him twelve times on a street in Guatemala City. Amazingly, he survived. As part of Cuba's counterterrorism effort, in the mid-1990s, the Cuban Directorate of Intelligence, DGI, infiltrated, one by one, fourteen spies into the Miami area. Known as La Red Avispa, the WASP network, the spies melted into the Cuban-American exile community. Three of them focused on U.S. military installations, but never managed to obtain any classified material. Most of the WASP network infiltrated exile groups they believed to be involved in violent operations against Cuba, including Brothers to the Rescue and the Cuban-American National Foundation, which Cuban intelligence viewed as one of Posada's benefactors. From those operations, the agents uncovered a number of violent plots, among them a plan to develop bomb-laden radio-controlled drones to possibly kill Castro, and a plot, tied to Posada, to bomb another civilian airliner carrying tourists in and out of Cuba. In spite of Fidel Castro's long-standing suspicions of U.S. support for Posada's terrorist activities, the 1997 hotel bombings became the catalyst for a significant, albeit temporary, Cuban-U.S. collaboration to combat terrorism. There was some precedent for such cooperation. The Carter administration was the first to make a concerted effort to crack down on exile terrorists, motivated in part by exile bombings in Miami, more than 100 between 1974 and 1977, and by revelations that the CIA had shielded its former assets from arrest. In March 1977, Carter instructed the Justice Department to take all necessary steps permitted by law to prevent terrorist or any illegal actions launched from within the United States against Cuba. After watching the CBS News documentary The CIA's Secret Army, which detailed the CIA's complicity in exile terrorism, Carter ordered an investigation by CIA Director Stansfield Turner. In June 1977, the State Department for the first time passed word to Cuba that an exile group in Florida was planning an attack on the Cuban coast using fast boats, and in August, U.S. law enforcement officers arrested the plotters on state weapons charges and federal charges of violating the Neutrality Act. I think a minimum of cooperation is in the reciprocal interests of trying to fight terrorist elements, Fidel Castro commented a few weeks later, adding, it's the least the United States government can do. In private, Castro told Senator Frank Church that, while he didn't think the U.S. government was behind terrorist attacks like the 1976 bombing of the Cubana airliner, he thought it was done by terrorists who received their training at one time from the CIA, Church reported to the White House. This is a monster that has been created and will be difficult to control, Castro told the senator. During both the Reagan and George H.W. Bush administrations, U.S. authorities continued to thwart exile plots launched from U.S. territory. Reagan's Justice Department dismantled the most notorious exile terrorist group, Omega-7, arresting virtually its entire membership and winning convictions for bombings and assassinations that stretched from Manhattan to Miami, 
including the 1980 murder of Cuban diplomat Felix Garcia Rodriguez. In 1984, Cuban intelligence uncovered what appeared to be a plot by right-wing extremists to assassinate President Reagan during a campaign stop in North Carolina. On a Saturday in early October, Cuban diplomat Nestor Garcia called the U.S.-UN mission to warn the head of security, Robert Mueller. Reluctant to bother Mueller on a weekend, the duty officer asked whether it was important. The counselor of the Cuban mission is calling on a Saturday for the chief of security of the U.S. mission. Garcia replied, Don't you think it must be important? Later that day, Garcia passed along the Cuban intelligence to both Mueller and U.S. Secret Service agents. The following Monday, Garcia received word the conspirators had been arrested, albeit not for threatening the president. A few days later, Mueller treated Garcia to lunch to express U.S. appreciation for Cuba's assistance. Faced with the 1997 hotel bombings, Castro took the initiative to reach out to Washington. After the April 12th bombing at the Melia Cohiba, Cuban security officials drafted a report on 13 terrorist acts between 1992 and 1997 against tourist destinations in Cuba, alleging that CANF had financed some of them. Castro then enlisted former Senator Gary Hart, who was visiting Havana in early May, to secretly deliver the report to President Clinton. Following the quadruple bombings on September 4th and the death of Fabio Di Selmo, the Clinton administration finally responded. Late on the evening of October 1st, the chief of the U.S. Interests Section, Michael Kozak, phoned the Cuban Foreign Ministry, M-I-N-R-E-X, and shared urgent U.S. intelligence that another bombing on a tourist facility might take place within 24 hours. As Castro recalled, Kozak said, he couldn't confirm this information, but he wanted us to know about it. The next morning, the Cubans summoned Kozak to MINREX to thank him officially for having passed the intelligence on. Six months later, on March 7, 1998, Kozak again passed an intelligence tip on a plot to detonate explosives somewhere in Cuba within the next 48 hours. Two days later, Foreign Minister Roberto Robaina met with Kozak to tell him that Cuban authorities had intercepted two Guatemalans carrying the same type of C-4 explosives that had been used in previous attacks. Their plot had been thwarted, and Cuba appreciated the U.S. support and collaboration. These criminal acts are extremely serious and affect not only Cuba and the United States, but also other countries in the region, Robaina said. We have a duty to prevent such acts. This would not be difficult if Cuba and the United States coordinated the fight against such actions. As Cuba had done in counter-narcotics collaboration, Robina noted, fighting terrorists would be handled with complete seriousness and discretion. Kozak congratulated the Cubans on the arrests and suggested that Cuba share information with U.S. authorities that might lead to identifying the masterminds behind the attack. U.S. officials, Kozak told the foreign minister, understood the importance of working together in this area. Garcia Marquez's Mission At this point, Castro decided to raise the profile of counterterrorism collaboration. He enlisted his trusted, experienced, and esteemed secret emissary, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, who was on his way to Washington, to carry an urgent message to President Clinton. Rather than send a direct letter to the U.S. President, Castro personally drafted his secret communication as a memorandum entitled, Summary of Issues, 
that Gabriel Garcia Marquez may confidentially transmit to President Clinton. First and foremost, Castro wanted Clinton to know that Cuban intelligence had uncovered a sinister terrorist plan that involved placing a bomb on a jetliner carrying tourists to or from Cuba, a modern-day version of the bombing of Cubana Flight 455 in 1976. The United States, according to the message, possessed enough reliable information on the main people responsible to take action to prevent this new modality of terrorism. Castro also took the opportunity to offer his thoughts on a half-dozen other issues in U.S.-Cuban relations, among them the Brothers to the Rescue shootdown. In addition, Castro entrusted Garcia Marquez with two additional unwritten questions to pose to Clinton, if the circumstances were propitious. On May 1st, Garcia Marquez arrived in Washington. Originally, he had asked U.N. Ambassador Bill Richardson to set up a private meeting with Clinton to discuss Colombia. Now, as a special emissary from Cuba, he was forced to tell Richardson that he was carrying an urgent message for the president. Word came back that Clinton would be on the West Coast for six days and that Garcia Marquez would have to give his message to National Security Advisor Sandy Berger. I didn't feel authorized to accept of my own volition the alternative of Berger receiving me instead of the president, above all because I was bringing him a very sensitive message that wasn't even mine. Garcia Marquez wrote in his trip report. My personal opinion was that I should only deliver it directly into Clinton's hands. As he waited for a response from the White House on whether Clinton would see him after he returned, the Nobel Prize-winning writer occupied himself by working on his memoirs in his hotel room. After a few days, he was fortuitously invited to a private dinner at the house of the former president of Colombia, César Gaviria, along with one of Clinton's top foreign policy advisors, Thomas Mac McClarty. The occasion seemed providential, Garcia Marquez believed. He arrived an hour early to consult Gaviria, a great friend and a smart counselor, on the secret message he was carrying and whether to discuss it with McClarty. Gaviria urged him to share the information and arranged to leave Garcia Marquez alone with McClarty at the end of dinner to talk privately. McClarty and I were like two old friends, Garcia Marquez would report. McClarty agreed. I think we managed to establish a good rapport and had a reasonably good exchange, he recalled. But he made it clear that he had a communique from Castro, and that obviously sent up a red flag. At the White House the next day, McClarty consulted with both Berger and NSC Latin America specialist James Dobbins on how to handle this delicate diplomatic situation. We went a little back and forth, he remembered, as to whether we would have the meeting in the White House or have a more informal meeting, you know, just kind of as a private citizen, a person of considerable standing, but still a private citizen. Two days later, they invited Garcia Marquez to the West Wing. On May 6th, at 11.15 a.m., McClarty Dobbins, counterterrorism czar Richard Clark, and the NSC's Cuba specialist Jeff De Laurentiis sat down with the writer and his interpreter, Patricia Sapela. We are at your disposal, McClarty told Castro's emissary. This is not an official visit, Garcia Marquez stated for the record. They all nodded in agreement, and their unexpected solemnity I found amazing, he wrote later. Then, in a simple way and a rather colloquial narrative, I related to them when, how, and why I had the conversation with Fidel that gave rise to the informal notes that I should deliver to President Clinton. 
I handed them to Mac McClarty in the closed envelope, and I asked him to please read them so that I could comment on them. He read it to himself, apparently with the fast-reading method that President Kennedy had made fashionable, but his changing emotions showed on his face as light in the water. After McClarty was done with the memo, he passed it to Dobbins, who read it and passed it to Clark. The conversation focused on the terrorist plan when Garcia Marquez posed the first unwritten question that Fidel had given him. Wouldn't it be possible for the FBI to contact their Cuban counterpart for a joint struggle on terrorism? Clark responded that this was a very good idea if Cuba assured the FBI that the cases would be handled discreetly. He suggested that the United States would take immediate steps to begin. Dobbins indicated that the White House would instruct the U.S. Interests Section in Havana to coordinate the effort. Garcia Marquez introduced Fidel's second unwritten question as an assertion. If the United States and Cuba could cooperate on these security issues, perhaps a political climate would be created that would allow for the full and free travel of U.S. citizens to Cuba. But this suggestion departed from the major focus of the meeting, and he received no real response. It was clear, he later reported back to Fidel, that they did not have, or do not know, or didn't want to reveal any immediate intention to resume American travels to Cuba. Nevertheless, from the perspective of both sides, the White House meeting was a success, a significant stepping stone toward a real collaboration on Cuba's number one security issue, terrorism, and the revival of a serious high-level U.S.-Cuban dialogue more than two years after the shoot-down of the Brothers to the Rescue planes. A key part of Castro's communique spoke directly about the incident. It seemed to me to be the first kind of serious overture about the shoot-down, McClarty said. I wouldn't say he apologized, that's not the right characterization, but he took responsibility. He did express regret that it had caused such a reaction in the United States and for the President, so the tone of it was quite positive and appropriate. As the meeting concluded, the four U.S. officials assured Garcia Marquez that they appreciated the information that Cuba had brought to their attention, that it would be taken seriously, and U.S. agencies would follow up accordingly. I think we implied that this would move through channels appropriately, McClarty said, and that President Clinton would be made aware of it. As the meeting broke up, McClarty paid Garcia Marquez the ultimate compliment. Your mission was in fact of utmost importance, and you have discharged it very well. The FBI Delegation In the days following the West Wing meeting, McClarty and De Laurentiis took the issue of counterterrorism collaboration through the interagency process and eventually to National Security Advisor Sandy Berger. Berger then authorized a delegation of FBI and counterterrorism specialists to travel secretly to Cuba, an unprecedented step forward in U.S.-Cuban cooperation on this sensitive security issue. We stood against terrorism. And we took it seriously, McClarty later explained the decision. The message Garcia Marquez had transmitted was a concrete signal that the Cubans were serious about cooperation, and that, I think, changed the dynamic from our standpoint. The NSC reached out to the FBI to support the Cuban effort to thwart further bombings and identify and arrest those behind the terrorist attacks. A team of FBI agents and Justice Department officials arrived in Havana on June 15, 1998, for three days of confidential briefings by high-level Cuban intelligence officials 
on Posada's operations and the wealthy exiles in Miami who allegedly financed him. The Interior Ministry turned over reports and dossiers stamped Confidencial to U.S. investigators, including surveillance reports on Posada's movements, summaries of phone conversations between Posada and his colleagues, transcripts of telephone calls between the arrested bombers and their handler in El Salvador, and forensic analysis of bomb fragments recovered by investigators. The meetings and information sharing seemed to go well. They were very professional, a Cuban official later said of the U.S. investigators, and very interested in what we had to show them. The meetings portended a new era of U.S.-Cuban cooperation on security issues and a potential turning point in the long history of violence against the island emanating from the United States. Cuban officials believed the United States now had the evidence, some of it based on material gathered by the WASP network spies, to detain Posada's financial backers. That expectation was raised further in mid-July, when the New York Times published an extensive front-page series on Posada. In a recorded interview with Times reporters, Posada not only explicitly took credit for the bombings, but implicated Jorge Mascanosa and CANF as his longtime financial benefactors. Over the years, Mascanosa had given him $200,000 for his operations, with the proviso that Posada not tell him what he was doing with it. The money would come with a message, Posada stated. This is for the church. But no arrests of CANF members, Posada Associates, or Posada himself took place in the summer of 1998. Instead, on September 12th, the FBI launched a coordinated raid against the WASP network, rounding up ten of the fourteen Cuban spies. Four agents managed to escape back to Cuba, five eventually pleaded guilty and cooperated with U.S. authorities in return for leniency. The final Cuban five, Antonio Guerrero, Fernando Gonzalez, Gerardo Hernandez, René Gonzalez, and Ramon Labanino, were charged with a range of offensives, from acting as unregistered agents of a foreign power to conspiracy to commit espionage and conspiracy to commit murder, for the brothers to the rescue shoot-down. Prosecuted in Miami, the five were convicted and sentenced to prison terms ranging from thirteen years to life. The arrests stunned Castro and his top officials. They had entrusted U.S. authorities with intelligence gathered by their spies in the belief that Cuba and the United States were engaged in a common enterprise, the fight against international terrorism. Instead of using the information to detain the terrorists, the FBI arrested Cuba's counterterrorism agents. The belief that the FBI used the intelligence information shared by Cuba to unmask the WASP network became a staple of the Cuban public relations campaign to free the Cuban Five, but it was fundamentally flawed. The FBI detected and began surveillance on the WASP network in 1995, long before the hotel bombings had begun. Nevertheless, the sense of betrayal in Cuba was real, and the impact on U.S.-Cuban relations enduring. As Cuba built a worldwide solidarity movement around the battle cry of freedom for the Cuban Five, their continuing imprisonment became yet another obstacle to better relations with Washington. Elian No event of the Clinton years prompted more sustained diplomatic interaction between the United States and Cuba than the saga of Elian González, the five-year-old boy found floating in an inner tube in the Florida Strait on Thanksgiving Day, 1999. The diplomatic dialogue that ensued over the next seven months was also unusual because it was collaborative rather than antagonistic. For once, 
former U.S. diplomat Wayne Smith observed, the two governments found themselves on the same side of the issue. Two fishermen rescued Elian, whose mother and ten others drowned when their small smuggler's boat capsized en route from Cuba to Miami. The Immigration and Naturalization Service, INS, released the boy into the custody of his great-uncle, Lazaro Gonzalez, in Miami, a spur-of-the-moment decision the Clinton administration would soon regret. At the U.S. Interests section in Havana, Vicky Huddleston had arrived as chief of mission only a few months before. Dagoberto Rodriguez, from the Cuban Foreign Ministry, called her on November 27th to tell her that a small child had landed in the United States and had to be returned to Cuba. I don't know anything about it, but I'll certainly inform my government, she replied. When she contacted the State Department, no one there knew anything about the case either. That's how it started for us, Huddleston recalled. Of course, we learned who Elian was pretty quickly. Although she was new to the interests section, Huddleston was not new to Cuba. She served for four years as deputy coordinator and then coordinator for Cuban affairs in the State Department in the early 1990s, the post she held when she first met Fidel Castro. On that occasion, Huddleston was part of a U.S. delegation to Havana following the agreement that ended the Angolan conflict. Fidel Castro offers this opulent reception at the Palacio de la Revolución, and the only two women there are me and the Soviet ambassador's wife, Huddleston told a journalist. Fidel immediately comes over to our table, looks at me, and says, And who are you? Someone's spouse? The diminutive but indignant Huddleston straightened herself up to confront the towering commandante and declared, No, I'm the director of Cuban affairs. Oh, I thought I was, quipped Fidel, echoing exactly his retort to State Department official William Wheeland forty years earlier. Huddleston began her assignment as head of the interests section under difficult conditions. Although she regarded herself as a moderate in favor of greater engagement with Cuba, the Cubans thought she was a hardliner because of her strained relationship with the head of the Cuban interests section in Washington, Alfonso Fraga Perez. Shortly after her arrival in Havana, Huddleston hosted a visit by Illinois Governor George Ryan. As Ryan prepared to leave, Huddleston needed to speak with him, but Cuban guards barred her from the airport protocol room where Ryan was waiting for his plane. I was really mad, and I just pushed on the door. Well, the door flew open. It wasn't hooked or anything and I just stumbled right into the room, she explained. And there is Alarcon, and there is Ryan. They were all horrified, and I was furious. She almost knocked me over, said Ricardo Alarcon, recalling Huddleston's dramatic entrance. He was so annoyed, he told his secretary, Any time she calls, I am not available. One day, however, the message from Huddleston was, Please call back. It is about Elian. So Alarcon did and it was the beginning of an intense, constructive, and mutually respectful working relationship. We met hundreds of times, almost daily, in person or by phone, Alarcon told the authors. Vicky showed a lot of sensitivity. She was very professional. The battle for Elian Gonzalez commenced almost as soon as the boy came ashore. His father in Cuba, Juan Miguel Gonzalez, wanted his son back. The Miami relatives, as they came to be known, refused to give him up. Elian became an icon to the Cuban-American community, the miracle boy saved by divine intervention, the symbol of Cuba's youth, of Cuba's future. To most members of the community, Elian's future belonged in the United States. 
that this small boy should be returned to Castro's tyranny, to the Cuba of socialism or death, was unthinkable. A Miami Herald poll found that 91% of Cuban Americans in South Florida believed Elian should stay in the United States. In Cuba, the refusal to return the boy became a symbol of the Miami community's hatred of their homeland, a hatred so intense they would take a child away from his loving father. Ordinary Cubans could identify immediately with Juan Miguel. His plight galvanized the sympathy and anger of the entire nation. Every Cuban, the human rights activists, the men on the street, it didn't matter. They wanted Elian back. He was their child, Huddleston said, describing the atmosphere. It was terrible propaganda against us, more effective than forty-plus years of Fidel's propaganda. Inside the Clinton administration, the instinct of most officials was to return Elian to his father, so long as he proved to be a fit parent. I immediately felt the kid should return, because this is his only parent, said Huddleston. The inclination was in that direction in the State Department from the very beginning. But before Juan Miguel could reclaim his son, he had to prove he was a good father by providing documentary evidence and submitting to a face-to-face -face interview. Deeply suspicious of U.S. officialdom and increasingly angry at what he regarded as the kidnapping of his son, he refused to cooperate. The deadlock was broken when State Department official William R. Brownfield came to Havana in mid-December for the scheduled consultations on immigration. When Bill came down, he said to Alarcón, Basically, our commitment is we'll do our best to return Elian, Huddleston explained. We'll have to proceed legally, but that's our commitment, if we can do the interview. So that's when they agreed to the interview. An officer from the INS and a political officer from the U.S. Interests Section met with Juan Miguel and Elian's paternal grandparents at Juan Miguel's house. The interview went well. On the basis of sworn statements from Elian's doctor, his teachers, his neighbors, and his grandparents, there appeared to be no doubt that Juan Miguel remained a devoted father. After a second interview, the INS ruled on January 5th that Elian should be returned to his father's custody. Angry Republicans on Capitol Hill introduced legislation to give Elian U.S. citizenship, accusing the Clinton administration of wanting to appease the Castro regime. The legal maneuvering in Miami and Washington made Cuban officials suspicious. My meetings with Alarcón became more and more intense during the long period of the legal trials, Huddleston recalled. As the legal wrangling dragged into March, it became clear that Juan Miguel needed his own attorney. After consulting with the White House and Department of State, Gregory P. Craig, who had defended President Clinton in his impeachment trial before the Senate, agreed to take the job. When a federal district court affirmed the INS decision granting custody to Elian's father, the issue became how Elian and Juan Miguel would be reunited. Cuban Americans demanded that Juan Miguel come to the United States, thereby giving him the opportunity to defect. At first, Juan Miguel refused. Huddleston did her best to convince her Cuban counterparts that such a trip was essential. I kept saying, you send Juan Miguel to Miami, and it'll solve the problem. So why don't you just do that? They said, no, you send Elian back. That's the right thing to do. Then Greg Craig weighed in. He really did play an absolutely key role, Huddleston said, recalling their collaboration. He was able to eventually convince them that the way to resolve this was that Juan Miguel go to the United States. Juan Miguel Gonzalez came to the United States in April, 
but despite Janet Reno's promise to return Elian to him forthwith, the Miami relatives fought a seemingly interminable rearguard legal battle. They won an injunction in federal court preventing Elian from leaving the United States until the relatives' custody claim could be heard on appeal, and they ignored a federal order to surrender Elian. For more than a week, Justice Department officials negotiated with the relatives, trying to get them to give up the child peacefully. Meanwhile, the relatives' house in Miami turned into a shrine to Elian, surrounded by a gaggle of press and a phalanx of Cuban-American demonstrators threatening to physically block any federal attempt to recover the boy. Local Cuban-American authorities added fuel to the fire by declaring that local law enforcement would not cooperate if federal marshals tried to take Elian by force. Reno herself took over negotiations with the Miami relatives, speaking with them by telephone. On Good Friday evening, President Clinton wrote in his memoir, I talked to Reno at midnight, and they were still negotiating, but she was running out of patience. The talks went on into the early hours of the morning, but the relatives remained intransigent, refusing even to recognize Juan Miguel's custody rights. At 5.15 a.m., an INS SWAT team broke into the house and spirited Elian away, while other officers held off demonstrators with mace and pepper spray. Elian was reunited with his father, but they were required to stay in the United States for another two months while the Miami relatives appealed their custody claim all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court which rejected their appeal. Finally, on June 28, Elian returned to Cuba. For many Cuban-Americans, the forcible removal of Elian from his Miami relatives and his return to Cuba produced a deep sense of betrayal. In a paroxysm of rage, rioters smashed store windows, lit fires in the streets, and trampled the American flag, denouncing their adopted homeland in front of the television cameras. Anglo counter-demonstrators threw bananas at Miami City Hall to symbolize their anger at living in a banana republic. Although the controversy over Elian Gonzalez built significant trust between U.S. and Cuban officials, it also had the paradoxical effect of stalling Clinton's strategy of crafting new openings to the island. Basically, what the Clinton administration did was put everything on hold when Elian began, Huddleston explained. It was sort of like, well, if we do anything that's forthcoming with the Cubans, then that would indicate that we're on their side, that we're not impartial. As a result, the process of gradually increasing people-to-people -people contact just stopped with Elian. The policy of opening became frozen. Among the frozen measures Clinton had been considering was lifting the travel ban. After Elian returned home, political considerations blocked the road to further progress. At the NSC, Sandy Berger had tasked Fulton Armstrong to develop a paper on threats, opportunities, and options for possible scenarios, but Vice President Gore's political staff prevented any further initiatives from the NSC or elsewhere in the administration during the months leading up to the presidential election. When the election outcome turned into a political crisis, the idea of doing anything during the transition was shelved. The seizure of Elian had done enormous damage to Al Gore's presidential ambitions, notwithstanding his lame attempt to distance himself from the decision. In November, Al Gore won only 18% of the Cuban-American vote, compared to Clinton's 22% in 1992 and 35% in 1996, losing Florida and the election to George W. Bush by 537 votes. 
I had worked for eight years to strengthen our position in the state and among Cuban Americans, and the Elian case had wiped out most of our gains, Clinton wrote later. Clinton was also frustrated that he was unable to make more progress in improving U.S.-Cuban relations. The president himself cared about this issue, Sandy Berger told the authors. I never had to convince him to do more. He wanted to do more. It's always a question of priorities, of course, but his instincts were toward more liberalization. Clinton's Cuba policy was deeply ambivalent, torn between the policy wonks' recognition that hostility no longer made sense in a post-Cold War world and the natural politician's instinct to break the Republicans' electoral lock on Florida. The strategies of calibrated response and parallel positive steps were aimed at gradually changing the policy without setting off alarms in Miami. When squaring that circle proved impossible, the president subordinated the policy to the politics. Thus, Clinton missed the opportunity presented by the end of the Cold War to fundamentally change U.S.-Cuban relations for the better. By signing the Helms-Burton legislation, he foreclosed not only his own ability to enter into a dialogue with Havana to normalize relations, but the ability of every succeeding president. Nevertheless, the Clinton era produced several lasting achievements in U.S.-Cuba relations. The successful negotiation of 1994 and 1995 accords normalized migration, ending the periodic crises that had plagued relations since Camarioca in 1965. In his second term, Clinton's strategy of engaging the Cubans on issues of mutual interest led to significant, albeit limited, cooperation to combat drug trafficking and international terrorism. The expansion of people-to-people -people linkages, opening educational travel and cultural exchanges, easing restrictions on Cuban-American travel and remittances, rebuilt bridges between U.S. and Cuban societies, even as the two governments remained estranged. I think it's a good story, Sandy Berger reflected. I feel as if we pushed things in the right direction for the right reasons. I would have liked to have done more, but I think we made some progress. Not enough but I think we laid the foundations for things that came later. 8. George W. Bush Turning Back the Clock We opted for change even if it meant chaos. The Cubans had had too much stability over decades. Chaos was necessary in order to change reality. Roger Noriega, Assistant Secretary of State for Western Hemisphere Affairs in June 2003, the director of the U.S. Occupation Authority in Iraq, retired General Jay Garner, met with President George W. Bush in the Oval Office to report on progress. At the close of the upbeat meeting, Bush asked, Hey, Jay, you want to do Iran? Sir, the boys and I talked about that, and we want to hold out for Cuba. Garner replied, We think the rum and the cigars are a little better. The women are prettier. You got it. Bush laughed. You got Cuba. They were joking, of course, but just a few days later, Bush drew the comparison more seriously at a campaign event in Miami. Under the current leadership in Cuba, there will never be freedom, he declared. One thing we believe in America is freedom for everybody. We love it for the people of Cuba. We love it for the people of Iraq. We love it for the people of Afghanistan. Of the three, only Cuba had not yet come under U.S. military occupation in the name of freedom. As the war in Iraq turned into a quagmire, the possibility of doing Cuba ceased to be a feasible option. 
but regime change remained the unwavering objective of U.S. policy during Bush's presidency. Convinced that stepped-up economic pressure and aid to Cuban dissidents would collapse the regime, despite 50 years of experience to the contrary, Bush's foreign policy team had no interest in dialogue with a government they were confident they could eliminate. Talking with the enemy, after all, represented a tacit acknowledgment of his de facto legitimacy. Even the most routine discussions between Havana and Washington would wither in the heat of this self-righteousness. The task of sustaining engagement with the island over the next eight years would fall to others. Bush's uncompromising policy was rooted not only in the messianic Wilsonianism of his foreign policy, but also in his close ties to Miami's most conservative Cuban Americans. They voted 82% Republican in 2000, punishing Democrats for returning Elian Gonzalez to his father in Cuba. Florida's governor, George's brother Jeb, counted the Cuban-American right as a key element of his political base. We have an insurance policy in George W. Bush, said Lincoln Diaz-Balart, Republican of Florida. You're not going to see George W. Bush betray the Cuban-American community. President Bush appointed more Cuban-Americans to senior positions than any president before him. They held key posts on the National Security Council staff at the State Department, the U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID, and the Foreign Claims Settlement Commission. In almost every agency, conservative Cuban-Americans manned the front lines of Bush's policy toward Latin America. 9-11. An Opportunity for Counterterrorism Cooperation On September 11, 2001, Cuba was one of the first countries to express condolences to the United States and offer help. As airports closed all across the country, Cuba offered its runways to any U.S. flight needing a place to land. The tone of Cuba's response shifted from sympathy to worry after Bush's speech to the Congress, in which he declared, Either you are with us, or you are with the terrorists. From this day forward, any nation that continues to harbor or support terrorism will be regarded by the United States as a hostile regime. While reiterating Cuba's opposition to terrorism, Castro spoke out vigorously against a unilateral U.S. military response. Bush's speech to Congress, he warned, signaled a U.S. strategy to act under the exclusive rule of force, irrespective of any international laws or institutions. Cuba, he worried, could be a target of such unilateralism. In the ensuing months, Cuba sought to demonstrate its good faith by signing all twelve international protocols against terrorism. Havana did not even object when the United States decided to use the Guantanamo naval base as a detention center for al-Qaeda and Taliban prisoners. Raul Castro praised the pragmatic cooperation between U.S. and Cuban military forces facing each other at the base, suggesting this as a model for cooperation in other areas. There is room, within the current framework of relations, for greater cooperation with regard to the drug problem, disorganized migration, and the fight against terrorism. In November 2001, Cuba gave the State Department an aid memoir, including draft cooperative agreements on those three issues. In December, when U.S. and Cuban diplomats convened for their semi-annual meeting on migration issues, Ricardo Alarcón presented the same proposals to the U.S. delegation. The U.S. diplomats insisted that their mandate extended only to discussing migration and that the proposals should be submitted through regular diplomatic channels. On March 12, 2002, Cuba again presented the draft agreements to the State Department. Washington did not respond, 
except to say that relations with Cuba would improve only if Cuba held free elections. Fidel Castro was still the bete noire of the hardliners running Bush's Latin America policy. They seized on terrorism as the rationale for a more confrontational policy, hoping to fend off congressional pressure to relax the embargo. Cuba, the hardliners pointed out, had been on the State Department's list of state sponsors of terrorism since 1982, and it maintained friendly relations with other states on the list. As soon as Bush appointed him Assistant Secretary of State for Western Hemisphere Affairs, Otto Reich launched a review of policy toward Cuba with the aim of seeking new ways to promote a rapid and peaceful transition to democracy. Despite these efforts, the September 11th attacks made the Cuban threat look puny by comparison. Not even the Pentagon believed Cuba still posed any significant threat to the United States. Richard Nuccio had tried in vain to get Cuba dropped from the terrorist list during the Clinton administration because there was no evidence that the Cubans were engaged in or supporting international terrorism. No one in the intelligence community disputed the facts, according to Nuccio, but no one in the Clinton White House had been willing to weather the political firestorm sure to be unleashed if Cuba was dropped from the list. When the State Department's new list was released in May 2002, Cuba was still on it. Cuba had vacillated over the war on terrorism, the report charged, because Castro had denounced U.S. military action in Afghanistan as excessive. Castro complained bitterly, pointing out that 3,478 Cubans had died in terrorist attacks launched from the United States, many with U.S. government complicity, and some of those responsible still resided openly in Miami. The State Department report on terrorism was quickly eclipsed by the furor that erupted when John R. Bolton, Undersecretary for Arms Control and International Security, accused Cuba of developing biological weapons. In a May 6, 2002 speech to the Conservative Heritage Foundation entitled Beyond the Axis of Evil, Bolton elevated rogue states, Libya, Syria, and Cuba, to evil's second tier because of their alleged efforts to acquire weapons of mass destruction. The United States believes that Cuba has at least a limited offensive biological warfare research and development effort, he asserted. U.S. concerns about Cuba's biotechnology industry dated to the early 1990s because the advanced technology Cuba used to produce commercial pharmaceuticals was also capable of producing biological weapons. The charge that Cuba was producing such weapons gained currency in Miami in the late 1990s when defector Alvaro Prendes claimed that Cuba had Soviet medium-range missiles armed with biological warheads aimed at South Florida. A State Department official dismissed such charges as unfounded. We get lots of reports from defectors and others, but when we go to check them out, it's always second and third hand, and the stuff doesn't check out. Bolton's speech seemed to announce that Cuba had launched a weapons program. Actually, he was simply repeating the conclusion of a 1999 National Intelligence Estimate, NIE, but omitting the NIE's cautionary language reflecting the intelligence community's uncertainty about the Cuban program. When Bolton circulated a draft of his heritage speech for clearance, both the State Department's intelligence specialist on biological weapons, Christian Westerman, and the CIA's National Intelligence Officer for Latin America, Fulton Armstrong, objected that Bolton's claims went beyond the available intelligence. Bolton's response was to demand that they both be fired. Castro denounced Bolton's claim as a diabolical fabrication and an infamous slander. 
He offered any international agency the right to come inspect Cuban biotechnology facilities. In 2005, the State Department quietly acknowledged that Bolton's claims had been overblown. A new intelligence estimate concluded that it was unclear whether Cuba has an active biological weapons effort now or ever had one in the past. Why had Bolton taken the equivocal conclusion of a 1999 NIE and, three years later, cast it as major policy declaration accompanied by a big media splash? Perhaps because Jimmy Carter was going to Cuba. Jimmy Carter Tries to Build Bridges Jimmy Carter first met Fidel Castro in Caracas in 1989 at the inauguration of Venezuelan President Carlos Andres Pérez. Beforehand, Carter convened a group of academic specialists on Cuba to discuss bilateral relations and meeting with Cuban-American leaders in Miami. Late in the evening of February 3rd, Castro met Carter in his Caracas hotel room for a wide-ranging discussion. Castro was exceedingly polite and eager to please, recalled Robert A. Pastor, Carter's senior assistant on Latin America. He clearly wanted to talk expansively on a long agenda, including Ethiopia, Angola, the Cuban Missile Crisis, Mariel. In a 45-minute conversation, the two discussed the conflict in Nicaragua, the negotiations then underway on Southern Africa, TV and Radio Marti, and Cuban-American travel. A decade later, lining up as honorary pallbearers at the funeral of former Canadian Prime Minister Pierre Elliott Trudeau in 2000, Carter and Castro found themselves face to face again. I outlined the health programs that the Carter Center has around the world, and he outlined the health programs Cuba has around the world, Carter recalled, and we agreed that we would sometime in the future share ideas. So that really planted in my mind an idea of an actual visit to Cuba. In January 2002, Castro followed up his informal invitation with a formal one, and Carter accepted. When word of the impending trip became public, Ileana Roslatinen, Republican of Florida, and Lincoln Diaz-Balart, Republican of Florida, wrote to President Bush, asking him to deny Carter a license to travel on the grounds that he was seeking to appease anti-American dictators. The White House was not so foolish as to deny the former president a license, but made clear its lack of enthusiasm. If President Carter were to travel to Cuba, said Press Secretary Ari Fleischer, the President hopes that his message would be a very direct and straightforward message. It's important for Fidel Castro to allow democracy to take root, to stop the repression and to stop the imprisonments, to bring freedom to the people of Cuba. Given Carter's commitment to human rights, there was no doubt he would speak out in support of democracy. But neither was there any doubt about his disdain for Bush's policies, which were completely counterproductive, he declared. We alienate the Cuban people, make a hero of Castro. We let him blame all of his self-imposed problems on the United States. Carter hoped to rebuild some of the bridges Bush had torn down. We'll be exploring ways within the law we can improve relations between the American people and the people of Cuba. When Jimmy and Rosalind Carter stepped off a private jet at Jose Marti International Airport on May 12, 2002, Fidel Castro was waiting to greet them. Gone were Fidel's olive-green fatigues, replaced by a double-breasted charcoal-gray pinstripe suit and black leather sneakers. Fidel brought a bouquet of white carnations and roses for Rosalind. "'The band is going to play your national anthem,' Fidel advised. "'Excuse them if they are a little rusty.' 
He escorted the carters down a red carpet to a podium on the tarmac, flanked by the Cuban and U.S. flags, and the band struck up two national anthems. As the final strains of the star-spangled banner faded, Fidel leaned to Carter and quipped, It's been a long time since that happened. In his televised welcome speech, Castro praised Carter as the only U.S. president since 1959 who made a serious effort to improve U.S.-Cuban relations. Carter expressed his appreciation for the opportunity to visit Cuba and to discuss ideals that Rosalind and I hold dear—peace, human rights, democracy, and the alleviation of suffering. The brief ceremony concluded, Castro and the Carters climbed into a black zeal-armored limousine, a gift from Soviet Premier Leonid Brezhnev in the 1970s. It's about a hundred years old, Castro confided as they walked to the limo, but it's the most comfortable we have. Behind the pleasantries lay tough negotiations over the details of the trip, according to Carter. I laid down some very stringent requirements. If I go down, I demand to have unlimited opportunities to meet with any of your leaders and any of the opposition that I choose, and to be able to speak as I please to the public media. And then I wanted to have time on television. The Cubans agreed to a live broadcast of Carter's speech to the nation, but scheduled it in the middle of the afternoon when most people would be working. I demanded that it be later in the evening when people would be watching TV, Carter told the authors. When he discovered that his address would be carried only on television, not radio, he appealed directly to Castro. As I was riding in from the airport to the downtown hotel with Fidel, I told him that I was a little bit disturbed about not being on radio, and he said, Well, we'll include radio, too. The evening of his arrival, Carter joined Fidel at the Palace of the Revolution for a state dinner and the first of two private conversations. Having been warned that Carter liked to retire early, Fidel discarded his normal modus operandi of chatting into the early hours of the morning. He would look at his watch constantly, and he would always make sure I left the meeting in time to get back to my hotel by midnight, Carter recalled gratefully. They talked about U.S.-Cuban relations and reminisced about the days when they faced one another as adversaries in the midst of the Cold War. The next morning, Carter met for breakfast at his hotel with two of Cuba's most prominent dissidents, Elizardo Sanchez and Oswaldo Paya. Just two days before Carter's arrival, Paya delivered to the National Assembly a petition calling for greater political liberty signed by 11,020 Cuban voters. Delivery of the petition marked the culmination of the Varela Project, named for Father Felix Varela, hero of Cuba's 19th-century independence movement. Under Article 88G of Cuba's Constitution, 10,000 voters could, by petition, place legislation on the agenda of the National Assembly. Paya's petition called upon the Assembly to authorize a referendum on a draft law guaranteeing freedom of expression, association, religion, and private enterprise. To most observers, the Varela Project appeared a quixotic venture when Paya began collecting signatures in 1996, but it gathered momentum after Pope John Paul II's 1998 visit to Cuba. By 2002, Paya had enlisted the support of more than 100 dissident groups and accumulated more than enough verified signatures to meet the constitutional requirement. The brilliance of Paya's strategy lay in combining a radically dissident stance with a mechanism clearly within the bounds of existing law. The Varela Project disproved the conventional wisdom that Cuba's dissidents were too fragmented to cooperate, too few to have any impact, 
and too isolated to reach beyond their own immediate circle of family and friends. Paya's success came as a shock to most observers. It must have come as an even greater shock to Cuba's leaders. After meeting with the dissidents, Carter toured Cuba's Center of Genetic Engineering and Biotechnology and fired back at Bolton's claim that Cuba was developing biological weapons. Convinced that Bolton's speech was timed to distract attention from his trip and blunt its impact, Carter noted that in the intelligence briefings he received before departing for Havana, no one mentioned biological weapons or Cuban support for terrorism. The trip's main event was Carter's Tuesday evening televised speech to the nation. The Cubans were annoyed that we wouldn't give them a copy of Carter's speech in advance, recalled Shelley McConnell, associate director of the Carter Center's Americas program. They really pressured us. Carter harbored some anxiety about the speech, too. Would Castro sit passively while Carter criticized Cuba's human rights record and called for greater liberty? As the two leaders walked toward the University of Havana's Aula Magna, Great Hall, Carter ventured that perhaps he would not answer questions after the speech as originally planned. Fidel stopped in his tracks. Why not? I'm afraid you'll jump up and start to debate me, Carter answered. I'm no expert in Cuban law. You're the lawyer. I will be silent, Fidel promised, and he was. Speaking in Spanish, Carter began his address by recounting the troubled history of U.S.-Cuban relations from the Platt Amendment to Cuba's alignment with the Soviet Union during the Cold War. Our two nations have been trapped in a destructive state of belligerence for 42 years, and it is time for us to change our relationship. Because the United States is the most powerful nation, we should take the first step. He called on Congress to lift the travel ban and end the embargo. The embargo freezes the existing impasse, induces anger and resentment, restricts the freedoms of U.S. citizens, and makes it difficult for us to exchange ideas and respect. Then he forthrightly criticized Cuba's lack of democracy. Your Constitution recognizes freedom of speech and association, but other laws deny these freedoms to those who disagree with the government. It was time, Carter said, for Cuba to join the community of democracies. To the irritation of Castro loyalists in the audience, Carter endorsed the Varela Project's call for a referendum on civil liberties. When Cubans exercise this freedom to change laws peacefully by a direct vote, the world will see that Cubans, and not foreigners, will decide the future of this country. It was fitting that Carter should mention the Varela Project by name, since the urn holding the remains of Father Felix Varela was interned there in the Aula Magna where Carter was speaking. Student and faculty leaders consumed much of the question-and-answer period denouncing the Varela Project as a subversive scheme of the United States, but the national broadcast gave it unprecedented prominence. Although Carter had not forewarned Fidel that he would talk about the Varela Project and expected him to be upset, Castro seemed to take no offense. At the session's conclusion, Fidel said simply, Good speech. Let's go to a baseball game. Until then, the Cubans had not confirmed Fidel's attendance, presumably waiting to see just what Carter would say on the air. At Latin American Stadium, where the Baltimore Orioles had played the Cuban national team in 1999, Cuba's Eastern All-Stars were taking on the West. Carter had the honor of throwing out the first pitch, and to assure a good outing, he had practiced with his Secret Service team on the roof of his hotel. Before Carter took the field, Castro made a request. 
I would like for you and me to walk to the pitcher's mound without any of my security officers or your secret service. The unhappy chief of Carter's secret service detail pointed out that none of the people in the ballpark had been screened for weapons, and all of them knew exactly where Carter would be standing. Confident that Castro had not brought him to Cuba to have him assassinated in front of thousands of baseball fans, Carter agreed to Fidel's request. By leaving his security behind, Carter demonstrated confidence in his host and respect for him. This, as much as anything, was what Fidel Castro had been seeking from U.S. presidents since 1959. The next day, Carter and Castro spent two hours in private discussing the state of U.S.-Cuban relations and Cuba's future. Carter pressed Fidel to take some initiative, offering a list of actions that might improve the climate for relations with Washington, including some suggestions for opening up his closed political and economic system. Castro replied that unilateral concessions would be seen in Washington as a sign of weakness by an administration that is still attacking us. Emerging from the meeting, Carter encountered his advisors, Bob Pastor and Jennifer McCoy. Carter just shook his head, Pastor recalled. Castro had rejected all of Carter's proposals. Carter had no leverage. As former president, he could commit the United States to nothing. If John Bolton's political salvo on biological warfare did not suffice to signal the Bush administration's disdain for Carter's trip, other officials pointedly told the press that the current president was preparing to harden U.S. policy toward Havana, not relax it. On Carter's last full day on the island, he met with two dozen dissidents. They were thrilled that Carter had publicly criticized the government's lack of democracy and endorsed the Varela Project. To Carter's surprise, the Cuban daily, Granma, had published the complete transcript of his speech in that morning's edition. Although the dissidents expressed divided views about the U.S. embargo, they were unanimous in their support for freer travel to Cuba. They opposed Washington's harsh rhetoric because when the bilateral climate deteriorated, their situation grew more tenuous. Significantly, they were also opposed to U.S. government funding for opposition activities inside Cuba, something Bush had pledged to increase. They expressed deep concern about any assistance that was identified as coming directly or indirectly from the U.S. government or any declaration by the U.S. government that official funds were being channeled to them, Carter told the press. Such funding created an undeserved stigma that they were subservient to Washington exactly the charge that Cuban officials routinely leveled against Paya and the Varela Project. At the departure ceremony the following morning, Fidel personally bid the Carters farewell. If it was significant, as Carter believed, that Fidel wore civilian clothes throughout his visit, perhaps it was equally symbolic that he arrived at the departure wearing his traditional olive-green fatigues. The Carter visit had been a friendly interlude, but it did not produce any lasting change in U.S.-Cuban relations, or Castro's preferred attire. Carter had approached his trip with modest aims. I recognized far in advance that after forty-three years of misunderstanding and animosity, that one brief trip could not change basic relationships between people, he said at the press conference just before returning to the United States. Later, in private, he was even more pointed. I didn't have any dreams that my visit would change the policies in Washington, he told the authors. But by opening a dialogue with Castro and speaking out to the Cuban people, he hoped to foster a better climate for future relations. 
Nevertheless, Castro's unwillingness to respond to any of Carter's suggestions disappointed him. He had imagined that Fidel might play a role like Deng Xiaoping in China, catalyzing reform. Their conversations convinced him otherwise. Immediately upon his return, Carter traveled to Washington to brief a bipartisan congressional group before being invited to brief President Bush. Carter urged Bush to expand cultural and scientific exchanges and academic travel as gestures toward better relations. Castro was offering to cooperate with the United States on environmental protection, counter-narcotics operations, and counter-terrorism issues, the former president related, but Carter found Bush deaf to any alternative thinking about Cuba. Emerging from the meeting, Carter and his principal Latin American advisor, Jennifer McCoy, were surprised that Bush seemed so uninformed about Cuba. Rather than engage the Cuban government, Bush aimed to replace it. Just three days after Carter's trip, on May 20th, Cuban Independence Day, Bush announced his Initiative for a New Cuba, setting regime change as the necessary condition for normalizing U.S.-Cuban relations and committing the United States to accelerate freedom's progress in Cuba in every way possible. He promised to strengthen TV and radio Marti, intensify enforcement of travel restrictions, increase support for Castro's internal opponents, and hold firm against efforts to relax the embargo. To cheers from a Cuban-American audience in Miami, Bush described Castro as a brutal dictator who cares everything for his own power and nada, nothing, for the Cuban people, who clings to a bankrupt ideology that has brought Cuba's workers and farmers and families nothing, nothing but isolation and misery. Just as George Bush ignored Carter's advice to engage Cuba, Fidel Castro ignored his advice to accept the Varela Project's referendum. Castro did not take Osvaldo Paya's challenge lightly, however. Shortly after Carter's departure, Castro called upon Cuban citizens to sign petitions for a constitutional amendment declaring socialism untouchable. The government's mobilization was framed not as a response to the Varela Project, however, but as a response to George Bush's initiative for a new Cuba. The drive was launched with patriotic speeches and rallies on the 101st anniversary of the Platt Amendment. In a spectacular show of organizational muscle, the government turned out more than 8 million people in just a few days to sign Castro's petition. The National Assembly tabled the Varela proposal and amended the Constitution, as Castro proposed. You can't get there from here. President Bush had no faith in people-to-people -people exchanges and ended most of them. A key element of Bush's policy was to curtail travel from the United States in order to reduce the flow of hard currency to the Cuban government. Travel to Cuba, both legal and illegal, had been growing since the end of the Cold War. By most estimates, the total number of Americans visiting annually was 150,000 to 200,000, most of whom were Cuban Americans. Some 30,000 others traveled legally under approved licenses, and the rest, somewhere between 20,000 and 50,000, traveled illegally. Bush stepped up enforcement of the travel ban, bringing thousands of enforcement actions against travelers, among them a 75-year-old grandmother who unwittingly took an illegal bicycle trip and an evangelical Christian who went to Cuba to distribute Bibles. The Treasury Department's Office of Foreign Assets Control, OFAC, had nearly two dozen people working on enforcement of the embargo against Cuba, compared to just two investigating Osama bin Laden's finances. 
In March 2003, Bush promulgated new regulations abolishing the people-to-people exchanges initiated by Bill Clinton, the largest category of legal travelers who were not Cuban-Americans. During the 2004 presidential campaign, he restricted academic exchanges so severely that only a few of the more than 30 study abroad programs between U.S. and Cuban universities survived. Bush cut Cuban-American travel from one trip annually to only one trip every three years. The new regulations also restricted the support Cuban-Americans could provide to family on the island through remittances and gift packages. The 2003 and 2004 regulations cut travel by U.S. residents in half, reduced humanitarian assistance from some $10 million annually to $4 million, and shrank remittances from $1.25 billion annually to about $1 billion. Travel in the opposite direction, Cubans visiting the United States, was virtually eliminated by Bush's invocation of a moribund Reagan-era presidential executive order banning entry to anyone employed by the Cuban government. In a centrally planned economy, that meant almost everyone. Cuban officials seeking to meet with U.S. businessmen to legally buy food and medicine were denied U.S. entry. Visas for Cuban musicians were held up so long that 22 of them missed the 2002 Grammy Awards ceremony. The Bush administration's rationale for these tougher sanctions was the unabashed aim of subverting the Cuban government by economic strangulation to bring about an expeditious end to the Castro dictatorship. Bush's antipathy to travel had a political as well as an economic dimension. Returning travelers demystified Cuba and made it more difficult to demonize Fidel Castro. The travel section of every major newspaper ran stories about Cuba as an attractive tourist destination, and every bookstore featured travel guides to Cuba from all the major publishers. As more and more people went and recounted their experiences to family and friends, Cuba seemed more and more like just another tropical island, albeit a little threadbare, not the evil archenemy of Bush's rhetoric. The Cubans themselves were well aware of this dynamic and encouraged it by welcoming American tourists. Each one who comes goes back to the United States and tells the truth about Cuba, said Foreign Minister Felipe Perez Roque. They say they have been to hell, but hell is not as hot as it had been depicted. The Migration Talks President Bush had little use for state-to-state dialogue either, even on issues of mutual interest. Ronald Reagan laid the foundation for U.S.-Cuban cooperation on migration with the 1984 agreement. Bill Clinton built on that foundation with agreements in 1994 and 1995 and bequeathed to George W. Bush a consultative mechanism, semi-annual talks to resolve problems in implementing the existing migration agreements and to avoid another migration crisis. But the migration talks did not take place in a vacuum. As the animosity between Washington and Havana intensified, the consultations could not withstand the pressure. Cuba used the talks as a forum to articulate its long-standing complaint about the unwillingness of the United States to either prosecute or extradite Cubans who hijacked boats and planes. Former Foreign Minister Ricardo Alarcón, who represented Cuba in the early rounds, routinely expressed Cuba's dismay with the Cuban Adjustment Act, which enabled Cubans reaching U.S. territory illegally to become permanent residents after a year. Together, the lack of prosecution and the fast track to residency constituted, in Cuba's view, an open invitation to illegal departures facilitated by violence. It was the same argument Fidel had made to Jimmy Carter's diplomats twenty years earlier, on the eve of the Mariel exodus.
The U.S. side refused to discuss the Cuban Adjustment Act, and the Cuban side refused to discuss issues on the U.S. agenda. The talks fell into a predictable pattern of charges and countercharges, each delegation repeating set positions at six-month intervals, with no visible movement. I cannot say we have advanced, Alarcón acknowledged in 2001. We are in the same place we were six months ago. Both sides downgraded their diplomatic representation. Alarcón, who negotiated the 1994 and 1995 accords, led the Cuban delegation during the first half-dozen rounds, even though Washington never sent anyone more senior than a deputy assistant secretary of state. In December 2001, the State Department's Cuba desk officer led the U.S. delegation. At the next consultative meeting in 2002, Cuba sent Rafael Dausa, the foreign ministry director for North American affairs. A rash of hijackings in early 2003 threatened a new migration crisis and brought the issue to a head. The slump in international tourism after September 11, 2001, tipped the Cuban economy into recession for the first time since 1994. Cuba's tourist industry suffered, and the recession in Florida reduced Cuban-Americans' remittances. In the past, economic hardship had been a harbinger of discontent and increased migration. The Mariel Boatlift of 1980 was preceded by recession and a rash of hijackings, as was the rafters crisis of 1994. The 1994 and 1995 migration agreements eased emigration pressure by providing for the orderly departure of 20,000 Cubans annually. In 2002 to 2003, however, U.S. processing of visas for Cuban emigrants slowed dramatically. Five months into the year, only 505 had been processed, compared with more than 7,000 the year before. The State Department explained the delays as a result of more elaborate immigration screening after September 11th. The Cubans were convinced that Washington was delaying the visas to shut off the migration safety valve, in the hope that discontent on the island would boil over. At the same time it slowed visa approvals, the Bush administration warned Cuba that a migration crisis like 1980 or 1994 would be regarded as an act of war. Nevertheless, Cubans who stole or hijacked boats and planes to get to Florida were still being routinely paroled into the community rather than prosecuted. To Castro, it appeared that the Bush administration was intentionally creating the conditions for a migration crisis that could then be used as a pretext for a military aggression against Cuba. A wave of hijacking attempts in early 2003 indicated that discontent and migration pressures were rising as the economy declined. The hijackings prompted a brief moment of U.S.-Cuba cooperation, one of the few during eight years of the Bush presidency. When an armed hijacker seized control of a Cuban civilian airliner in March, hoping to fly to Florida, U.S. Interests Section Chief James Kaysen helped Cuban authorities try, unsuccessfully, to talk the hijacker into surrendering. Kaysen even went out to the plane on the tarmac to speak to the hijacker in person. Two days later, when armed men hijacked a civilian ferry, Kaysen provided Cuban television with a statement warning that hijackers would be prosecuted in the United States and barred from residency. Anxious to halt the hijackings, the Cuban government took the drastic step of executing three young men who tried to hijack the ferry, the first executions in Cuba in more than a decade. The United States did arrest and prosecute the plane hijacker with whom Kaysen tried to negotiate, and in July, the U.S. Coast Guard returned 15 people who stole a boat in exchange for a Cuban promise of mild sentences for them. 
Kaysen issued another statement to the Cuban media, reiterating Washington's strong opposition to any form of hijacking and urging Cubans to use the available legal mechanisms to emigrate. Cooperation proved short-lived, however. In January 2004, Washington rejected Cuba's request to schedule the next round of migration consultations, suspending the talks because the Cubans would not address issues on Washington's agenda. The Cubans called cancellation of the talks irresponsible. The immigration consultations did not resume for the remainder of the Bush presidency. In 2007, the migration agreements came close to collapse when Washington failed to comply with its core commitment, processing a minimum of 20,000 Cuban emigrants for entry visas. The interests section fell about 5,000 visas short. A statement from the foreign ministry complained that Washington's failure to honor its basic obligation would encourage illegal immigration. If Washington hoped to provoke instability, the ministry warned, that would surely also affect the United States. This is the end of the CD. The audiobook continues on the next CD. Democracy Promotion the State Department claimed it fell short of processing immigrant visas because Cuba refused to allow the interests section to fill vacancies in staff positions needed for immigrant screening and blocked the importation of needed materials. The Cubans blocked the new staff and materials because the interests section had taken on major responsibility for delivering U.S. assistance to Cuban dissidents. In 2005, Interests Section staff delivered 155,000 pounds of material to more than 2,500 Cuban recipients, three times the amount distributed in 2000. Overt U.S. support for democracy promotion in Cuba began under President Bill Clinton, but most of the funding stayed in the United States, going to non-governmental organizations that produced or distributed critical commentary about Cuba for global audiences. Under Bush, the funding for these programs rose from an annual budget of $3.5 million in fiscal year 2000 to a peak of $45.7 million in fiscal year 2008, and more of the money went into Cuba, supporting Cuban human rights activists, independent journalists, independent trade unionists, and former political prisoners. The U.S. interests section in Havana spearheaded this expanded support for regime opponents. The post served as a vehicle for delivering material assistance, a haven for collective planning by dissidents, and a megaphone amplifying their message. Support for the dissidents supplanted diplomatic communication as the interests section's principal mission. Shortly after Bush's inauguration, Vicki Huddleston, who had been the chief U.S. diplomat in Havana since late 1999, began handing out shortwave radios to dissidents with whom she met periodically, describing her efforts as a new, robust outreach policy made possible by the new administration in Washington. Now I'm really able to push the envelope, she explained. Cuban officials protested that her behavior was improper, but to no avail. This is sheer intervention in our internal affairs, complained one official. They did that in Eastern Europe, and they think they have the right to do it in Cuba. We won't allow it. When private protests brought no surcease, Castro himself publicly reproached the diplomats. The U.S. government is also making a mistake if it expects that people who work as hired hands of a foreign power will go unpunished, he warned. U.S. diplomats were acting in ways inconsistent with their diplomatic status. We are not willing to allow our sovereignty to be violated or to allow the norms that govern diplomatic behavior to be flouted in a humiliating manner. 
he threatened to close the interests section. One measure of Castro's annoyance, he never invited Huddleston to meet with him. The first time they met face to face after she was assigned to the interests section came during the arrival ceremony for the Carter delegation. He just looked relieved I didn't give him a little radio, she joked. In September 2002, James Kaysen replaced Huddleston and took an even more aggressive public stance in support of the dissidents, meeting with them frequently and offering them the use of the U.S. mission and his residence for meetings. He attended meetings in their homes, including some to which the international press was invited. Huddleston thought the tactics a mistake. You can't do anything in Cuba that's effective if it's too public. You cannot be in the face of the government. She tried to explain this to Kaysen, advising him that he shouldn't try to push any harder on support for the dissidents because she had already pushed right up to the line of what the Cubans would stand for and maybe a little beyond it. Kaysen and his bosses in the State Department, however, had a different agenda. They wanted to show how tough they were. On March 6th, in a speech to the National Assembly, Castro publicly condemned Kaysen's disparaging remarks about the Cuban government made at a press conference at the home of prominent dissident Marta Beatriz Roque, calling it a shameless and defiant provocation. He repeated his threat to close the interests section. Cuba can easily do without this office, a breeding ground for counter-revolutionaries and a command post for the most offensive subversive actions against our country. But he also speculated that perhaps the Bush administration was intentionally trying to provoke him into severing diplomatic ties. He was right. Provoking Castro was exactly Kaysen's aim, as Bush's Assistant Secretary of State for Western Hemisphere Affairs, Roger Noriega, later admitted. We told our friend James Kaysen that if only he could provoke the Cuban regime to expel him from the country, we could respond by closing the Cuban interests section in Washington. Rather than strike at the diplomatic mission, Castro struck at the dissidents. On March 18, 2003, state security began rounding them up. Seventy-five of the accused were found guilty of working with the United States to subvert the Cuban government and sentenced to long terms in prison, ranging from six to twenty-eight years. The U.S. interests section's public posture in aiding them enabled prosecutors to portray the defendants as U.S. agents, thereby branding dissent as treason. Washington responded by expelling 14 Cuban diplomats from the U.N. mission in New York and the Cuban interests section in Washington, the largest mass expulsions since diplomatic relations were broken in 1961. Castro's crackdown reflected his fear that Washington planned to foment disorder on the island as an excuse for intervention. The United States had articulated a doctrine of preemptive war and invaded Iraq on the grounds that dictator Saddam Hussein supported terrorism and was developing weapons of mass destruction. Exactly the same charges had been leveled against Cuba. Arresting the dissidents not only broke up their internal network, but also projected an image of strength and implacable determination to resist U.S. pressure. This new preemptive strike policy of yours puts us in a new ballgame, a Cuban official said to former diplomat Wayne Smith after the U.S. invasion of Iraq. And in that new game, we must make it clear that we can't be pushed around. Commission for Assistance to a Free Cuba In October 2003, President Bush appointed a Commission for Assistance to a Free Cuba to plan for Cuba's transition from Stalinist rule to a free and open society to identify ways to hasten the arrival of that day. 
It issued its first report on May 6, 2004, just as the presidential campaign was heating up, and recommended a menu of policy options, most of which had been circulating among conservative think tanks for years. Bush promptly accepted them all. The unabashed aim of the recommendations was subversion, to bring about an expeditious end to the Castro dictatorship. By constricting the flow of hard currency, the United States would cripple the economy, stoke popular discontent, and thereby precipitate Castro's collapse, the same rationale for imposing the original embargo in 1962. The Cuban government's reaction to the new measures was immediate and intense. This is the plan for Cuba's annexation and the return to the fake Republic of the Platt Amendment, declared the Central Committee of the Communist Party. On May 14th, a million Cubans marched past the U.S. interests section in Havana to protest the new measures, and Castro declared himself ready to die fighting in defense of my homeland. As relations deteriorated, the U.S. interests section became ever more isolated. Although James Kaysen was never expelled, he was for all intents and purposes persona non grata. A Cuban cartoonist caricatured him as a pink fairy who magically turned free clinics into private ones, only to be chased away by loyal Cuban citizens as he metamorphosed into a rat. Delighted, Kaysen had a pink fairy costume made and had his picture taken in it, declaring, I've become like an icon. He was none too diplomatic either. He called Castro a power-hungry egomaniac and referred to Ricardo Alarcón, president of Cuba's National Assembly, as Alarcrán, scorpion. In the backyard of his residence, he built a model of a Cuban prison cell to show visitors. Antagonism reached a Fellini-like apogee in December 2004 when Kaysen supplemented the interests section's Christmas decorations of Frosty the Snowman, Santa Claus, and candy canes with a large neon sign reading 75 to commemorate the convicted dissidents. Twice the foreign ministry summoned him to demand that the decorations be taken down. Twice he refused. In retaliation, the Cubans erected a billboard just across the coastal highway, depicting photographs of U.S. soldiers abusing Iraqi prisoners in Abu Ghraib prison, overridden with a swastika and the words fascists and made in the USA. Cuban artists painted a two-story-high caricature of Kaysen as Santa Claus riding in a sleigh full of bombs pulled by soldiers. The atmosphere did not improve much when Michael E. Parmley replaced Kaysen in late 2005. At first, Parmley appeared intent on toning down the bombast. I didn't intend to bring Jim Kaysen's attitude to the job, Parmley explained. But after being upbraided by Washington hardliners, he adopted the same confrontational rhetoric as his predecessor. Parmley, like Kaysen before him, saw U.S. support for the dissidents as essential preparation for the regime's imminent demise. While serving in the U.S. Embassy in Romania, he had witnessed the fall of Nicolae Ceausescu and was convinced Castro would meet the same fate. He foresaw revolt spreading like wildfire in the streets, and although he could not predict exactly when, he said, I am pretty sure it is coming. In January 2006, Parmley went on the offensive in the psychological war, erecting a three-foot-high scrolling electronic news billboard running the length of the fifth floor of the interests section. The screen displayed excerpts from the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the works of Martin Luther King, and sundry other messages meant to inspire Castro's opponents and annoy Cuban authorities. It certainly annoyed Fidel Castro. 
he mobilized a million Cubans to rally in anti-imperialist plaza next to the interests section, where he denounced the Bush administration for its insolence and its rubbish. Parmley could not resist turning on the billboard, which scrolled, Only in totalitarian societies do governments talk and talk at their people and never listen. After the rally, the Cubans erected 138 black flags outside the U.S. mission to commemorate more than 3,000 Cubans killed by U.S. covert operations and to obscure the billboard. I realized that by turning the billboard on, we were plunging the relationship into a deep hole. Parmley said later, From then on, the Cuban government only talked to us if they absolutely had to. There were a handful of exceptions. Communications between the U.S. Coast Guard liaison and his Cuban counterpart remained professional and productive. Another area of cooperation, surprisingly, was counterterrorism. In 2006, the FBI sent another team to Havana to investigate Luis Posada Cariles' role in the 1997 hotel bombings. They were able to interview witnesses, examine forensic evidence, and visit crime scenes, which they had been unable to do previously. It was all about respect, Parmley recalled. If you respected the Cubans, they respected you. Disaster Diplomacy Humanitarian disaster relief was one area in which Cuba and the Bush administration came close to cooperating, but ultimately failed for lack of trust. Cooperation on hurricane tracking and prediction dated back to the early 20th century and continued even after 1959. Scientists working at the U.S. National Hurricane Center and the U.S. Weather Bureau in Miami stayed in contact with their Cuban colleagues, exchanging information on developing storms despite the ups and downs of bilateral relations. Cooperation in hurricane tracking was not matched by cooperation on hurricane relief, however. An unusually large number of tropical storms battered Cuba during the Bush administration, leading to some unexpected initiatives. In November 2001, Hurricane Michelle, a Category 4 storm, did $2.8 billion in damage on the island. Washington responded by offering condolences, a disaster assessment team, and the possibility of humanitarian aid to be channeled through non-governmental organizations. Cuban Foreign Minister Felipe Perez Roque declined, but in surprisingly polite fashion. The kindly offered assistance would not be needed, he explained, but instead Cuba asked to be able to make a one-time purchase of food to replenish its reserves destroyed by the storm. The Trade Sanctions Reform and Export Enhancement Act of 2000, TSRA, had exempted food sales from the embargo, so there was no legal impediment to granting Havana's request. U.S. and Cuban diplomats quickly agreed on the terms of the sale, and the necessary licenses were granted to U.S. suppliers. The one-time purchase turned into a continuing commercial relationship, and over the next decade, Cuba purchased $4.3 billion of U.S. agricultural products. U.S. offers of humanitarian assistance, always on the condition that the aid be channeled through non-governmental organizations, became more or less routine thereafter, as did Cuban refusals. Then, in 2005, it appeared that Hurricane Wilma might break this stalemate. As usual, Washington offered to deploy an assessment team, and this time, instead of rejecting it, Castro accepted the offer conditionally. He proposed widening the scope of the team's mission to include a discussion of regional cooperation on disaster preparation and relief. Cuba wanted to be treated as an equal partner, not a supplicant for assistance. 
The Bush administration rejected Castro's proposal and withdrew the offer to send a team, charging that the Cubans wanted to make this into some sort of political show. In 2008, Cuba was hit by the worst hurricane season in its history. Five major storms racked the island, inflicting more than $5 billion in damage. At first, the United States simply repeated its routine offer to send $100,000 in disaster relief via private charities. But as the scope of the damage became clear, even Cuban-American members of Congress, usually unanimous in their opposition to any engagement with Cuba, urged the White House to find a way to help. In response, the administration increased the offer of bilateral assistance to $6.3 million and agreed to provide $5 million directly to the Cuban government without preconditions, an unprecedented offer. But Cuban officials could not bring themselves to take U.S. help. Instead, they countered with a request analogous to what they had done in 2001 after Hurricane Michelle. They asked that the embargo be lifted, at least for six months, so that Cuba could buy construction materials to rebuild damaged homes. President Bush was not willing to allow another chink in the embargo. Havana saw Washington's offers of aid as an attempt to appear beneficent while continuing to promote regime change through economic strangulation. Fidel Castro, in particular, was unwilling to be seen as chasing after Yankee dollars, an image of Cuban subservience that had obsessed him since his first trip to the United States as Cuba's leader in April 1959. Washington could have treated Cuba's willingness to accept a disaster assessment team in 2005 as a breakthrough and understood Havana's desire to expand the agenda as face-saving. Instead, the administration treated the proposal as a trick to gain political advantage. Cuba could have treated Washington's 2008 offer of government-to-government assistance as a significant change in U.S. policy, which it was, and accepted the badly needed aid. Instead, it rejected the offer out of pride. Washington could have temporarily lifted the embargo on construction materials, establishing a precedent for future cooperation. Instead, the White House chose to keep the embargo intact. Each time one side made a gesture, suspicion prevented a positive response. Succession The announcer on Cuban TV looked grim, shaken but struggling to maintain his composure, as he read Fidel Castro's July 31, 2006 announcement that illness required him to temporarily hand power to his brother Raul and a leadership team of six others. In the forty-seven years since the triumph of the revolution, Fidel had never before surrendered the mantle of leadership. Clearly, the emergency intestinal surgery that sidelined him in July 2006 was serious, and its complications would prove more debilitating than anyone could foresee. In Miami, conservative Cuban-Americans danced in the streets when they got word of Castro's illness. Many assumed he must be dead already, or soon would be, and, they hoped, his regime would quickly follow the old man to the grave. In Washington, uncertainty prevailed. Was Castro dead or dying? Would the team of successors be able to hold the regime together? And most importantly, would Cubans by the tens of thousands take to the streets or to rafts? Publicly, the Bush administration reacted cautiously, not wanting to set off a migration crisis. White House Press Secretary Tony Snow disparaged Raul Castro as Fidel's prison keeper. But the United States remained committed to legal channels of migration, he added. We encourage people not to get into the water. In Cuba, reaction to Castro's illness was muted. His age and prior health problems, he fainted during a speech in June 2001, 
and tripped as he stepped off a stage in October 2004, breaking his knee and arm, had put the issue of succession on the public agenda. But faced with the possibility of losing the only leader 70% of Cubans had ever known, the public's predominant emotion was quiet concern and uncertainty about the future. There were no riots, no celebrations, and no rush to exodus. On August 18th, Cuba's major daily, Granma, published Raul Castro's first public statement since assuming the presidency. After reassuring everyone that the government was functioning smoothly, he spent most of the interview talking about relations with the United States. He ridiculed Washington's assumption that it had the right and ability to disrupt Cuba's leadership transition, as if they were the rulers of the planet. The Bush administration would get nowhere with impositions and threats, he affirmed, but Cuba remained open to normal relations on an equal plane. He then read a passage from Fidel's speech to the 1986 Congress of the Cuban Communist Party. Cuba is not remiss to discussing its prolonged differences with the United States and to go out in search of peace and better relations between our people. This would be possible only when the United States decides to negotiate with seriousness and is willing to treat us with a spirit of equality, reciprocity, and the fullest mutual respect. In the twenty years since Fidel's address, this had been Cuba's position and remained so, Raoul said. In response to Raoul's offer to negotiate, the State Department insulted him, calling him Fidel's baby brother and Fidel Light. U.S. policy remained committed to promoting regime change, and the administration would do everything we can to hasten that day, said spokesman Tom Casey. On December 2, 2006, Cuban Armed Forces Day, Raul Castro gave a major national address, explicitly repeating his offer of dialogue, based on the principles of equality, reciprocity, non-interference, and mutual respect. To be sure that Washington understood that the offer was not just rhetorical, the Cubans asked the Swiss ambassador in Havana to carry a private message affirming it to the State Department. The interests sections in Havana and Washington were still technically extensions of the Swiss embassies, even though they had been staffed by U.S. and Cuban diplomats since 1977. That the Cubans felt compelled to send a message through the Swiss, rather than use either of the interests sections, reflected just how much the lines of communication between the two governments had deteriorated. The administration dismissed the Cuban initiative as nothing new, Assistant Secretary for Western Hemisphere Affairs Thomas Shannon told the press. Washington had no interest in dialogue until the Cuban regime changed. Castro's illness and prolonged disappearance from public life heightened expectations in Washington that the long-awaited moment of regime change might finally be at hand. Ultimately, this transfer won't work, Shannon predicted. There is no political figure inside of Cuba who matches Fidel Castro. From there, Shannon let wishful thinking get the better of him. You have to understand that authoritarian regimes are like helicopters. There are single fail-point mechanisms. When a rotor comes off a helicopter, it crashes. When a supreme leader disappears from an authoritarian regime, the authoritarian regime flounders. And I think that's what we're seeing at this moment. The core assumption underlying Bush's policy was that the Cuban government, solidly in power for nearly half a century, was actually fragile and vulnerable, dependent on Fidel Castro's charismatic authority. U.S. officials appeared convinced that when Fidel Castro finally passed from the political scene, the regime would simply collapse. Since his death was inevitable, albeit unpredictable, 
They saw no reason to negotiate with a regime that had a life expectancy no better than that of its octogenarian founder. Planning for the moment of Fidel's demise had been the focal point of U.S. policy since the first report of the Commission for Assistance to a Free Cuba in 2004. A second report from the Commission in July 2006, just before Castro's illness, recommended spending $80 million over two years on democracy promotion, with $31 million specifically slated for dissidents. The report also included a classified annex, which presumably outlined covert operations to complement the overt policy of subversion. Shortly after Raul Castro assumed the presidency, the State Department established a war room to plan for the Cuban collapse. Fidel Castro remained gravely ill throughout the rest of Bush's presidency, but succession did not augur transition. The Cuban regime continued to function normally. Bush bet that Fidel's demise would lead to a quick collapse, catapulting to power the dissidents in whom Washington had invested so much. The dissidents of today will be the leaders of tomorrow, Bush declared in October 2007. When that outcome failed to materialize, however, Bush was left with a policy from the 1960s, unmitigated hostility incapable of either removing the regime or exercising any constructive influence over it. When Raul Castro gave the annual July 26th speech in 2007 on the anniversary of the attack on Moncada Barracks, he did not bother to yet again offer an olive branch to the Bush administration, which he called erratic and dangerous. Instead, he offered it to the next U.S. president, reaffirming Cuba's willingness to discuss on equal footing the prolonged dispute with the government of the United States. Otherwise, he added, we are ready to continue confronting their policy of hostility, even for another fifty years, if need be. 9. Obama A New Beginning The United States seeks a new beginning with Cuba. I know there's a longer journey that must be traveled to overcome decades of mistrust, but there are critical steps we can take toward a new day. President Barack Obama at the Summit of the Americas, April 17, 2009 We've been engaged in a failed policy with Cuba for the last 50 years, and we need to change it, declared presidential candidate Barack Obama in August 2007 at a political rally in Miami's Little Havana, the citadel of Cuban-American conservatism. Obama promised to end restrictions on remittances and family travel for Cuban-Americans, resume people-to-people -people educational and cultural exchanges, and engage Cuba in talks on issues of mutual interest. Engagement, he argued, offered the best hope for promoting a democratic opening in Cuba, which would be the foremost objective of our policy. While Obama's opponents, Hillary Clinton and John McCain, followed the tried-and-true path of lambasting Cuba to appeal to conservative Cuban-American voters, Obama aimed to win over moderates a growing segment of the community, according to opinion polls. In May 2008, Obama was warmly received in Miami by the Cuban-American National Foundation, the most prominent political group in the community. The Foundation's own journey from extremism to relative moderation reflected the political evolution of its constituency. Advocating engagement proved to be a winning strategy. Obama received 35% of the Cuban-American vote, compared to just 25% for John Kerry in 2004, and he carried Florida, proving that a Democrat could take a moderate stance on Cuba and still make inroads with this solidly Republican constituency.
Having defied conventional wisdom that only a get-tough-on-Cuba platform would sell in South Florida, Obama changed the domestic political dynamics of the issue, making new thinking about Cuba politically feasible. As the new president took the oath of office, conditions for a rapprochement between Cuba and the United States appeared more propitious than at any time in half a century. We saw this as the best opportunity in a generation to break the logjam in U.S.-Cuban relations, said a former senior administration official. Reconnecting In Latin America, hopes ran high that Obama would finally tackle this anachronistic Cold War policy that symbolized a bygone era of U.S. hegemony. Several heads of state, foremost among them Brazilian President Luis Inácio Lula da Silva, called for ending U.S. sanctions against Cuba, even as they congratulated Obama on his victory. Just days before the hemisphere's heads of state convened at the Fifth Summit of the Americas in Trinidad and Tobago in April 2009, Obama fulfilled his pledge to lift travel and remittance restrictions on Cuban Americans. He also authorized U.S. telecommunications companies to contract with Cuba to provide improved television, radio, telephone, and Internet access. Latin American presidents applauded Obama's actions, but still pressed him, making Cuba a litmus test of Obama's declared desire to forge a new, equal partnership with the region. One after another, they spoke in the plenary session of the need to reintegrate Cuba into the inter-American community. Obama tried to assuage their concerns, reiterating his commitment to engagement. The United States seeks a new beginning with Cuba, he promised. His pledge, however, was short on specifics. Two months later, at the 39th General Assembly of the Organization of American States, Latin American states moved to repeal the 1962 resolution that suspended Cuba's membership, the symbolic cornerstone of Washington's policy of excluding Cuba from the hemispheric community. At first, the United States opposed the repeal, but faced with the prospect of humiliating defeat, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton agreed to compromise. The United States supported repeal in exchange for language that required Cuba to accept the practices, purposes, and principles of the OAS, including, implicitly, the commitment to democracy embodied in the Santiago Declaration of 1991. Although Cuba forswore any interest in rejoining the OAS, hopes also ran high in Havana, both in the government and on the street, for a change in U.S.-Cuban relations. Raul Castro repeated his offer, first made when he assumed Cuba's presidency in 2006, to open a dialogue with Washington. Just before the summit of the Americas, he declared, We have let the American government know both in private and in public that Cuba was willing to open a dialogue on all issues, including human rights, political prisoners, and political freedoms, everything they would like to talk about, but on an equal footing, with absolute respect for our sovereignty and for the right of the Cuban people to their self-determination. At the interests section in Havana, U.S. diplomats turned off the streaming electronic news billboard that so annoyed Cuban officials, and the Cubans replaced the phalanx of black flags erected to obscure the billboard with Cuban flags. With the billboard gone, the foreign ministry resumed mid-level diplomatic contacts with the interests section. Obama also moved to restore the cultural and academic linkages that the Bush administration worked so assiduously to sever. Many Cuban scholars, who had been denied permission to travel to the United States for a decade, were granted visas, and cultural exchanges flourished once again. 
The Miami-based musician Juanes gave a concert to a million young Cubans in Havana's Plaza de la Revolución in September, and Cuba singer Silvio Rodriguez played in Daughters of the American Revolution, DAR, Constitution Hall, the following May. We are no longer denying visas on policy grounds, explained a State Department official, but the policy changes were being made below the radar to avoid stirring up political controversy on Capitol Hill. In May 2009, the State Department proposed to Havana a resumption of the bilateral consultations on migration suspended by President Bush in 2004. Havana accepted, and the talks resumed in July. Cuban Deputy Foreign Minister Dagoberto Rodriguez, heading the Cuban delegation, presented the U.S. side with a draft accord to curb people smuggling and indicated Cuba's interest in expanding the talks to include cooperation on counterterrorism, counter-narcotics operations, and hurricane preparedness. Although no formal agreements came out of the meeting, both sides judged it a good first step. In September, Deputy Assistant Secretary of State, DAS, Bisa Williams, traveled to Cuba for talks on restoring direct mail service, suspended since 1963. She was given unprecedented access, according to the report by U.S. Interests Section Chief Jonathan Farrar. Over five days, she met with Cuban officials in the Justice, Agriculture, Health, and Interior Ministries, academics at the University of Havana, and a pantheon of bloggers and dissidents. She traveled outside Havana, which U.S. diplomats had not been allowed to do since 2003, visiting the hurricane-damaged region of Pinar del Rio and the Latin American School of Medicine for foreign scholarship students, including some from the United States, the first time a U.S. diplomat had been allowed to visit the school. In extensive discussions with Vice Minister Rodriguez, Williams came away with the clear impression that the Cubans were serious about wanting better relations. Rodriguez told her that, by according her such positive treatment, we meant to show our readiness to move forward in our relationship. To be sure, progress would require confidence-building, but even within the existing diplomatic constraints, we see a way forward. It is hard to overstate just how markedly improved were our dealings with the Cuban government and GOC, Government of Cuba, institutions, during Williams's visit, Farrar concluded in his report. There are a number of action items from the various meetings that provide opportunity for us to test the GOC's willingness to continue to make progress on issues of interest. Making up is hard to do. Despite this promising start, there were clouds on the horizon suggesting that President Obama might not move as fast as expected, or as promised, to change 50 years of failed U.S. policy. When he rolled back restrictions on Cuban-American travel and remittances, he passed up the opportunity to also roll back the restrictions President Bush placed on people-to-people -people educational exchanges. For another two years, travel to Cuba would remain far less open than it was under President Clinton for everyone except Cuban-Americans. In April 2009, when the State Department released its annual country reports on terrorism, Cuba was still included as a state sponsor of terrorism, despite a dearth of supporting evidence, although the narrative was far more balanced than it had been previously, making the discrepancy between evidence and conclusion all the more stark. Obama's 2009 and 2010 foreign aid budgets both included $20 million for USAID's semi-covert democracy promotion program targeting Cuba, exactly the same funding Bush had requested in 2008. 
Among the programs the Obama administration inherited and continued was the Cuba Democracy and Contingency Planning Program, which, according to USAID internal records, was expressly designed to hasten Cuba's peaceful transition to a democratic society, in other words, to facilitate regime change. By December 2009, the initial flurry of U.S. gestures had subsided and relations were already slipping back into business as usual. As so often happened with Cuba policy, Obama's caution was born of political calculation. Senator Robert Menendez, the senior Cuban-American Democrat in Congress, vehemently opposed any opening to Cuba. With the Democrats holding just 60 seats in the Senate, before Edward Kennedy's death, and Republicans determined to filibuster every significant Obama initiative, Menendez's vote took on unusual importance. In March 2009, he signaled his willingness to defy both his president and his party to get his way, voting with Republicans to block passage of a $410 billion omnibus appropriations bill needed to keep the government running because it relaxed the requirement that Cuba pay in advance for purchases of food from U.S. suppliers. To get Menendez to relent, Treasury Secretary Timothy Geithner had to promise in writing that the administration would interpret the law in the narrowest possible way and would consult Menendez on any change in U.S. policy toward Cuba. After lifting restrictions on Cuban Americans, debating Latin American heads of state at the summit, and supporting repeal of the 1962 OAS resolution, the members of Obama's foreign policy team felt that they had done Cuba, even though they had not come close to resetting relations with Havana in the way they reset relations with Moscow. Administration officials had an inflated opinion of just how dramatically they had changed policy. Hillary Clinton called it a completely new approach, and Obama called it the most significant changes to my nation's policy towards Cuba in decades. But in fact, Obama's policy at the end of 2009 was still more restrictive than Bill Clinton's or Jimmy Carter's. Having done Cuba, the administration moved on to other issues. Cuba, unlike Russia, could not command sustained attention from the president and his senior aides, who confronted an imposing array of international problems, wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, nuclear proliferation in Iran and North Korea, China's growing economic might, and turmoil in the Middle East. Even in the Western Hemisphere Bureau at the Department of State, Cuba was not at the top of the agenda. Taking office in November 2009, Arturo Valenzuela, Obama's new assistant secretary, faced more urgent issues, repairing the diplomatic damage done by Washington's equivocal response to the military coup in Honduras, working with Mexico to counter the surge in drug violence along the border, and coordinating relief efforts in the wake of Haiti's devastating earthquake. Every day you are bombarded by a thousand things, explained a former U.S. official who worked on Latin America. In short, Cuba was not a problem so urgent or acute that it demanded policymakers' attention. Moreover, Obama regarded lifting restrictions on Cuban-American travel as a major concession to Havana. For both policy reasons and domestic political ones, he wanted to see some significant Cuban response before doing more. Cuba has to take some steps, send some signals that when it comes to human rights, when it comes to political rights, when it comes to the ability of Cubans to travel, the president told CNN and Espanol on the eve of the 2009 Summit of the Americas. The president was under no illusion that improving bilateral relations would be quick or easy. What you saw, with the relaxation of restrictions on Cuban Americans, was a good-faith effort, 
a show of good faith on the part of the United States that we want to recast our relationship. Now, a relationship that effectively has been frozen for fifty years is not going to thaw overnight, and so having taken the first step, I think it's very much in our interest to see whether Cuba is also ready to change. We don't expect them to change overnight, that would be unrealistic, but we do expect that Cuba will send signals that they're interested in liberalizing in such a way that not only do U.S.-Cuban relations improve, but so that the energy and creativity and initiative of the Cuban people can potentially be released. There are a range of steps that could be taken on the part of the Cuban government that would start to show that they want to move beyond the patterns of the last fifty years. Asked by a reporter if this meant that the ball is now in there, Cuba's court, Secretary Clinton replied affirmatively, We do expect Cuba to reciprocate. We would like to see Cuba open up its society, release political prisoners, open up to outside opinions and media, have the kind of society that we all know would improve the opportunities for the Cuban people and for their nation. So I think it is fair to say that we would like to see some reciprocal recognition by the Cuban government for us to continue to engage in this dialogue and take further steps. The same message was conveyed privately. In discussions with their Cuban counterparts, U.S. officials repeatedly emphasized that the key to normalizing relations was not to be found solely in the degree of bilateral engagement between the United States and Cuba, but in the Cuban government's efforts to engage its own people and to respond to their wishes. The demand for reciprocity did not go over well in Havana, nor did Washington's expectation that Cuban leaders should restructure their political system to accommodate the United States. Cuban officials did not give Obama much credit for his early initiatives. His rhetoric at the Summit of the Americas and Washington's grudging support for repealing the 1962 OAS resolution were written off by Cuban officials as forced on him by Latin America. Ending restrictions on Cuban Americans was seen as a campaign debt he owed to Miami, not as a signal of goodwill toward Havana. Moreover, while U.S. officials portrayed it abroad as a concession to Cuba, the White House justified it domestically as a way of undermining the Cuban government, creating independence, creating space for the Cuban people to operate freely from the regime, the kind of space, in our view, that is necessary to move Cuba forward to a free and democratic Cuba. Raul Castro acknowledged that the U.S. measures were positive, but they were of limited scope. The blockade remains intact. Cuba has not imposed any sanction on the United States or its citizens. Therefore, it is not Cuba that should make gestures. Cuba's offer to negotiate with the United States rested on the sole condition that the talks be conducted on the basis of equality. Raul spelled out exactly what he meant. We are willing to discuss everything with the United States government, on equal footing, but we are not willing to negotiate our sovereignty or our political and social system, our right to self-determination, or our domestic affairs. Cyber War one reason for the Cuban leadership's disenchantment with Obama was his continuation of George W. Bush's democracy promotion programs, especially what the Cubans referred to as Washington's cyber war. U.S. efforts to use computer technology to undermine the Cuban regime traced back to the very first democracy promotion grant that President Bill Clinton gave to Freedom House in October 1995, which provided $500,000 for the purchase of computer equipment, copiers, and fax machines for Cuban dissidents. The Internet was also an important component of George W. Bush's plans to foster regime change. 
Unfettered Internet access would allow dissidents to communicate with one another and with a global audience through sites in the United States, some of which were also funded by the Democracy Promotion Program. The 2006 report of Bush's Commission for Assistance to a Free Cuba recommended spending $24 million to provide communications technologies to activists in Cuba, the Miami Herald reported. Officials say Internet access, YouTube videos, and cell phone text messages propelled movements to challenge governments in places like Tibet and Burma. Cuban authorities also recognized the political power of the Internet. While acknowledging that digital technology was essential for Cuba's economic development, Minister of Communications and Information Ramiro Valdez warned that it also provided the United States with powerful new tools to bring the destabilizing power of the empire to threatening new levels. Cyberspace, he argued, had to be understood as a battlefield in the struggle against imperialism. The Internet, the wild cult of new technologies, can and must be controlled. A U.S. initiative begun in the second Bush administration sought to create a series of secure, clandestine wireless networks in Cuba that could communicate directly via satellite with Internet access points in the United States, circumventing Cuban government servers and surveillance. Various U.S. aid contractors, including the International Republican Institute, IRI, Freedom House, and Development Alternatives Incorporated, DAI, won contracts to provide selected Cubans with Internet technology, enabling them to communicate through protected networks. In a confidential meeting in August 2008 at USAID headquarters, a top USAID official advised DAI representatives that the democracy program wants to provide the technology and means for communicating the spark which could benefit the population and provide a base from which Cubans can develop alternative visions of the future. The program was an operational activity that demanded continuous discretion. Despite Obama's promise to take a new approach to Cuba, these covert programs did not subside. They grew. Obama and Hillary Clinton made net freedom a global foreign policy priority. The freedom to connect, Clinton argued, is like the freedom of assembly, only in cyberspace. Moreover, the social networks of cyberspace were also a powerful tool for popular mobilization for collective action, an accelerant of political, social, and economic change in places like Iran, Tunisia, and Egypt. Cuban officials regarded Washington's plans to create secure telecommunications networks among dissidents as the latest variation in Washington's 50-year project to destabilize the government. Cuba's nascent community of bloggers, some of them critical of the regime, was seen as part of this strategy. Washington did not create Cuba's bloggers, but it embraced them enthusiastically as more appealing and effective challengers to Cuban authority than the aging, disputatious dissident movement. Younger individuals, including bloggers, musicians, and performing and plastic artists, do not belong to identifiable organizations, though they are much better at taking rebellious stands with greater popular appeal. U.S. Interests Section Chief Jonathan Farrar cabled Washington in April 2009. When Bisa Williams traveled to Havana in September, she made a point of meeting with a group of bloggers, including Yoani Sanchez, whose Generacion E blog offered an acerbic look at daily life in Cuba, winning Sanchez international acclaim and the hostility of Cuban officialdom, which she regularly lampooned. 
After Sanchez was awarded Spain's Ortega y Gasset Prize for journalism and was named by Time magazine as one of the world's 100 most influential people in 2008, U.S. officials began lauding her at every opportunity. Sanchez's growing notoriety brought increasing pressure from Cuban authorities. Fidel Castro himself criticized her for providing fodder to imperialism's mass media in order to undermine the revolution. The government intermittently blocked access to her website, and authorities warned her that she had transgressed all the limits of tolerance with your closeness and contact with elements of the counter-revolution. In November 2009, plainclothes police forced her and a friend into an unmarked car, roughed them up, and, before releasing them, warned them to stop their counter-revolutionary activity. The White House condemned the assault, and two weeks later, President Obama surprised Sanchez by sending her written responses to a series of interview questions she had submitted. It is telling that the Internet has provided you and other courageous Cuban bloggers with an outlet to express yourself so freely, Obama wrote, and I applaud your collective efforts to empower fellow Cubans to express themselves through the use of technology. Two weeks later, on December 3, 2009, Cuban state security arrested Alan Gross. The Case of Alan Gross Working as a contractor for the consulting firm DAI on a project funded by USAID's Democracy Promotion Program, Alan Gross traveled to Cuba five times, all on tourist visas, to surreptitiously provide advanced satellite communications technology, laptop computers, disks, flash drives, and cell phones to independent, non-governmental organizations in Cuba's Jewish community. A wireless network where none previously existed was developed and made operational in three target group communities. Network usage by target groups can now be tracked. Direct communications between target communities and the U.S. are generated on a regular basis, Gross reported to DAI after the first four-trip phase of his Para la Isla project. In the second phase, aborted when he was detained, Gross intended to improve security tactics and protocols in order to impede Cuba's ability to track or detect specific aspects of the non-terrestrial transmitted signals. He also planned to provide a fixed package of telecommunications system, what he called Telco in a Bag, to an additional three beneficiaries to be approved by USAID. At the U.S. Interests section, officials speculated that Gross's arrest had been prompted by the Cuban government's growing concern about bloggers and Washington's promotion of them. In a secret cable to Washington, Farrar wrote, The conventional wisdom in Havana is that GOC, Government of Cuba, sees the bloggers as its most serious challenge, and one that it has trouble containing in the way that it has dealt with traditional opposition groups. The old guard dissidents mostly have been isolated from the rest of the island. The GOC doesn't pay much attention to their articles or manifestos because they have no island-wide resonance and limited international heft. For a while, ignoring the bloggers too seemed to work, but the bloggers' mushrooming international popularity and their ability to stay one tech step ahead of the authorities are causing serious headaches in the regime. The attention that the United States bestowed on Yoani Sanchez first by publicly complaining when she was detained and roughed up, and later by having the president respond to her questions, further fanned the fears that the blogger problem had gotten out of control. Obama's continuation of Bush's democracy promotion program led Raul Castro to conclude that Washington's claim to want a new relationship with Cuba was nothing but 
a huge propaganda campaign staged to confuse the world. In fact, he told Cuba's National Assembly on December 20, 2009, two weeks after Gross's arrest, the truth is that the instruments for the policy of aggression to Cuba remain intact and that the U.S. government does not renounce its efforts to destroy the revolution. The enemy is as active as ever, he continued. Proof of that is the detention in recent days of an American citizen who engaged in the illegal distribution of sophisticated means of communications. In March 2011, Gross was convicted of subversive acts against the independence or territorial integrity of the state and sentenced to 15 years in prison. Washington insistently denied that Gross had done any wrong and declared that no further progress in U.S.-Cuba relations could be made until he was released. U.S. officials speculated that his arrest and conviction signaled Cuba's disinterest in better relations. It is my personal belief that the Castros do not want to see an end to the embargo and do not want to see normalization with the United States, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton declared. But Gross's arrest prompted congressional Democrats, especially John Kerry, Democrat of Massachusetts, chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and Howard Berman, Democrat of California, chair of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, to take a close look at USAID's Cuba democracy program. They were shocked by what they found. Although the program was not classified, it was run as a covert operation. Even USAID did not know who in Cuba was receiving assistance from some of the project's contractors. Senior USAID officials were uncomfortable with this legacy of Bush's regime change policy. In a series of meetings with congressional staff, they worked out a plan to downsize the Cuba program and reorient it toward supporting genuine links between U.S. and Cuban societies, to decontaminate it, in the words of Fulton Armstrong, who had retired from the CIA and was working for Senator Kerry. For a few months in 2010, it appeared that Gross might be released in exchange for restructuring the USAID program. With the State Department's approval, Armstrong briefed Cuban diplomats about the impending changes, asking whether this would smooth the way for Gross's release. The Cubans responded that it would. In October 2010, Senator Kerry met with Cuban Foreign Minister Bruno Rodriguez in New York to discuss the democracy program and Alan Gross. The informal deal seemed to be on track. Back in Washington, however, Senator Menendez called the White House demanding that the Cuba program be left intact. Obama's team did not have the stomach to wage a political fight with Menendez, so they scuttled the proposed changes in the program. From this, the Cubans concluded that the Obama administration's word could not be trusted. Expanding Travel Frustrated that President Obama had left in place the restrictions on people-to-people -people travel imposed by President Bush, Freedom to Travel advocates launched a major legislative campaign to lift the travel ban in 2010. With large Democratic majorities in both the House and Senate, hopes for success ran high. Opponents blasted the Freedom to Travel coalition as venal for putting dollars ahead of human rights. Senator Menendez denounced businessmen who only care about padding their profits by opening up a new market. But it was hard to make the case that travel advocates were insensitive to human rights when 74 of Cuba's prominent dissidents and human rights advocates, including Yoani Sanchez, supported lifting the ban. In August 2010, Cuba's Cardinal Jaime Ortega came to the United States, met with administration officials, and quietly urged members of Congress to allow freer travel, following Pope John Paul II's 1998 injunction that 
Cuba open itself to the world, and the world open itself to Cuba. The principal obstacle faced by supporters of the travel bill was not the opposition of Cuban-American Republicans, but opposition from moderate and conservative Democrats. In the Senate, Menendez threatened to filibuster the travel bill. In the House, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, a rising star of the party from South Florida, organized opposition within the Democratic caucus. When supporters of the travel bill first rolled it out with 178 co-sponsors, Wasserman Schultz recruited 53 House Democrats to write a letter to Speaker Nancy Pelosi declaring their determination to vote against it, a formidable number that foreshadowed a nasty battle inside the Democratic caucus if the bill went to the House floor. But the most frustrating obstacle facing advocates of free travel was the indifference displayed by President Obama. The White House could have tipped the balance by endorsing the travel legislation or even by lobbying quietly behind the scenes. Instead, the administration did nothing. Freedom to travel advocates could not collect the votes necessary to get their bill out of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, where it died. Meanwhile, the Obama administration had its own, more limited travel initiative. Advocates of greater engagement with Cuba, especially Obama's appointees in the State Department's Bureau of Western Hemisphere Affairs, argued from the outset that the president ought to roll back Bush's restrictions on academic and educational travel. The Bureau developed a package of regulations that restored people-to-people -people educational travel and made academic exchanges even easier than they had been under Bill Clinton. The Bureau then began the laborious process of pushing them through the executive branch bureaucracy. Blocked by Obama's political advisors in the White House, the new regulations won approval only when Secretary of State Clinton took the issue directly to the President in August. But when the administration briefed congressional Democrats on the impending policy change, some pushed back hard. Senator Menendez released a public statement opposing the new measures. Florida Democrats, led by Wasserman Schultz, warned that any easing of the travel regulations would hurt their prospects in the midterm elections. The White House shelved the new regulations until January 2011 and then announced them late Friday before a holiday weekend to attract as little attention as possible. Cuba's foreign ministry called the new measures positive, though they have a very limited scope and do not change the policy against Cuba. Spain's Good Offices One element of Obama's new approach to Latin America was to partner with Spain, especially when dealing with Cuba and Venezuela. They recognize our ability to pass along messages and to mitigate diplomatic incidents, big and small said the Spanish ambassador to the United States, Jorge de Escalar de Mazarero. When Obama met with Spanish Prime Minister José Luis Rodríguez Zapatero just a few weeks after inauguration, they talked about how Spain might assist U.S. overtures to Cuba. By the fall of 2009, the White House was frustrated that Cuba had done nothing significant in response to Obama's relaxation of restrictions on Cuban-American travel and remittances. When Obama met Zapatero again on October 13th, the president asked that Foreign Minister Miguel Ángel Moratinos carry a back-channel message to Raúl Castro. We're taking steps, but if they don't take steps too, it will be very difficult for us to continue, Obama explained. Tell Raúl that if he doesn't take steps, neither can I. The president understood the process would take time. Tell the Cuban authorities that we understand that things can't change overnight, but down the road, when we look back, it should be clear that this was the moment when changes began. 
Moratinos delivered Obama's message to Havana the following week. In reply, Raul Castro proposed the creation of an ongoing secret channel of communication to the White House, through which the two sides could discuss Cuban steps that would meet U.S. concerns. Washington, however, was not interested in opening a high-level dialogue. If Havana wanted to talk with Washington, it should engage seriously through the existing channels, Moratinos was informed. As U.S. efforts to engage Cuba stalled, Spain decided to go forward on its own. We have been traditionally ahead of you in engaging with Cuba, a Spanish diplomat told his U.S. colleague in Havana, and Madrid was not about to wait to see how U.S. policy unfolded. With Spain's encouragement, Raúl Castro and Cardinal Jaime Ortega entered into discussions about the release of political prisoners. Castro's dialogue with the Church began in May 2010 when Ortega appealed for the government to lift a ban on public demonstrations by the Ladies in White, female relatives of political prisoners. Castro agreed, and the dialogue turned to the broader issue of prisoners. In early July, Moratinos came to Havana to join the discussion. On July 7th, after a meeting among Raúl Castro, Ortega, and Moratinos, the Cardinal's office announced that the government would release 52 political prisoners, including everyone arrested in 2003, who was still imprisoned. Those who wished to go into exile would be welcomed by Spain. Over the course of the next few weeks, the government agreed to release even more prisoners, with the total eventually reaching 127, including almost everyone classified by Amnesty International as a prisoner of conscience. The Cuban government's willingness to treat the Catholic Church as a legitimate party in a dialogue on human rights was unprecedented. As Ortega said, the government had recognized the role of the Church as an interlocutor with civil society in a way that it never had before. Although the United States played no role in the discussions that led to the prisoner release, Spanish diplomats and Cardinal Ortega kept Washington well briefed. In late June, just before the prisoner release was announced, Ortega traveled quietly to Washington to meet with administration officials and members of Congress. According to the Spanish daily El País, the consultations were part of the agreement the Church reached with the Cuban government and were designed to pressure U.S. political leaders to respond with other gestures of goodwill toward Cuba. Cuban officials felt that the coming prisoner release was a major concession and they expected some reciprocal action. Ortega also reaffirmed Raúl Castro's hope for better relations with Washington. He repeated to me on several occasions that he is ready to talk to the United States government directly about every issue, Ortega said during a follow-up trip in August. It would be a mistake, Ortega implied, for Washington to maintain the status quo until Cuba became a democracy. Everything should be step by step, he said. It's not realistic to begin at the end. This is a process. The most important thing is to take steps in the process. But with Alan Gross still in jail, Obama was not disposed to take any new steps. Many constructive things could happen in U.S.-Cuban relations, a senior U.S. official told the Cardinal, but only after the case of Alan Gross was resolved. When the prisoner releases were announced, Secretary Clinton called it a positive sign, but the White House was completely silent in contrast to Obama's outspoken defense of Yoni Sanchez in November 2009 and his condemnation of Cuba's clenched-fist repression in March 2010 after the death of hunger striker Orlando Zapata Tamayo.
Obama's silence was especially ironic, since in 2009, when specifying what Cuba needed to do to prompt better relations with the United States, he enlisted releasing political prisoners and allowing greater freedom of religion. Now, when the Cuban government took significant steps in these areas, Washington did nothing in response. With progress in U.S.-Cuban relations stalled, Assistant Secretary of State Arturo Valenzuela proposed a bold and politically risky move, a meeting with Foreign Minister Rodriguez at the United Nations in New York. It would be the highest-level diplomatic contact between the two countries since the Clinton years. Valenzuela hoped that, face-to-face, -face, the two diplomats might be able to move U.S.-Cuban relations off dead center. Other administration officials opposed the idea, but Valenzuela was able to win Secretary Clinton's approval. Through diplomatic channels, the administration proposed a meeting to the Cubans on the condition that Havana give some indication it was serious about moving forward, especially regarding Alan Gross. Havana agreed to the meeting, but as it drew near, Cuba had not responded with an agenda, despite entreaties from both Washington and Madrid. With no Cuban response, Valenzuela felt compelled to cancel the meeting. The Cubans then appealed to Spanish diplomats, who convinced senior U.S. officials to reschedule it. From this inauspicious beginning, things went downhill quickly. Rodriguez opened the meeting at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel with a lengthy recitation of Cuba's historical grievances against the United States, something Cuban diplomats often do in their encounters with U.S. officials before they get down to serious dialogue. Instead of arguing about the past, Valenzuela tried to shift the focus toward the future, but Rodriguez did not engage on that basis. In the end, nothing positive came out of the 90-minute encounter. It was a terrible meeting, Valenzuela later confided to colleagues. The result was zero. Governor Richardson's Private Diplomacy In August 2009, New Mexico Governor Bill Richardson, a diplomatic troubleshooter who carried messages between Havana and Washington during the Clinton administration, headed to Havana to promote New Mexico's agricultural exports. In light of Richardson's close relationship with Obama, he broke with longtime ally Bill Clinton to endorse Obama over Hillary in 2008, and his many exploits as a high-level envoy, he had secured the release of prisoners in Cuba, North Korea, Iraq, and Sudan, many observers wondered if Obama had tapped Richardson for some secret diplomacy with Cuba. I'm not an envoy of the administration. I'm carrying no message he insisted, but adding, obviously I do plan to submit my impressions to the administration after I conclude. Having used Richardson as a channel for communicating with the Clinton White House in 1996, the Cubans took advantage of the opportunity to use him again. Richardson came away with the strong impression that Cuban leaders wanted to move forward. I found the atmosphere of the Cubans good, he said upon returning. They like President Obama. They like the new tone. Richardson conveyed Obama's impatience with Cuban inaction. I told the Cubans, you need to do something. You've got to reciprocate with some gestures. The Cubans did not agree. A few days after Richardson's departure, Foreign Minister Bruno Rodriguez made it clear that Cuba would not make any concessions to win better relations with Washington, and certainly not concessions of the sort Obama was seeking. Cuba is not going to negotiate its internal affairs with anyone, neither the United States nor any government or group of countries, Rodriguez reaffirmed. The embargo policy is unilateral and should be lifted unilaterally. A year later, in August 2010, Richardson returned to Havana to open another round of trade talks 
and to try to get Alan Gross out of prison. I am here not as an administration envoy, Richardson again insisted. I'm trying to sell chili, salsa, green chili to the Cuban government. But he admitted that the State Department had asked him to use his good offices to seek Gross's release. I'm going to be working very hard today to see if we can get Mr. Gross out, he told CNN. Richardson urged Foreign Minister Rodriguez to release Gross as a humanitarian gesture, and he came away encouraged. After my intervention, there is some progress in the case. I believe I've made some inroads. But when Richardson returned to the United States, Alan Gross did not come with him. A few weeks later, on October 27th, Richardson was invited to New York to meet with Foreign Minister Rodriguez, who was in town for the annual U.N. General Assembly debate on the U.S. embargo. Rodriguez had a message he wanted Richardson to deliver to the highest authorities of the U.S. government. Rodriguez had just met with Assistant Secretary Valenzuela, but the meeting had not gone well, he told Richardson. Valenzuela would only talk about Alan Gross, Rodriguez claimed. To the Cubans, Gross was merely a symptom of the troubled relationship, not the heart of it. Rodriguez noted that Cuba had encouraged its supporters in the General Assembly to tone down their criticism of President Obama in the debate that led to a vote of 187 to 2 in support of Cuba's demand that the embargo be lifted, a gesture that he said indicated Cuba's desire to improve relations. Foreign Minister Rodriguez several times affirmed that President Raul Castro had made the political decision to improve ties with the U.S., Richardson wrote in his report on the meeting, but that Cuba perceived that the U.S. government and the Obama administration did not reciprocate the sentiment. Rodriguez dismissed Obama's relaxation of restrictions on Cuban Americans as insignificant, suggesting instead that if the administration was serious about gestures, it should ease the embargo to allow agricultural credits and disaster relief. He also noted Washington's failure to respond to the Cuban government's dialogue with the Catholic Church and the release of more than 100 political prisoners. Rodriguez acknowledged the importance of the Alan Gross case, but at the same time wants the U.S. to recognize the importance the Cuban Five case holds for them, Richardson wrote in his notes. In response to a question, he said he wasn't linking the two, but was specifying that there must be progress on both fronts simultaneously. Richardson delivered the message to the White House, along with a public exhortation for Obama to use his executive authority to take new initiatives to jumpstart the diplomatic process. His efforts had no noticeable effect on policy, but he was not discouraged, and he was not done trying. Jimmy Carter Returns in March 2011, Jimmy Carter made a surprise trip to Cuba at the invitation of Raul Castro. Carter had been looking for an opportunity to encourage better U.S.-Cuban relations and to get a feel for the changes underway since Fidel's retirement. His first trip in 2002 failed to improve ties between the two governments. Neither George W. Bush nor Fidel Castro was disposed to take any initiative to change the atmosphere of animosity. Now, however, new leaders in both capitals professed a desire to escape the legacy of a half-century of hostility. With the diplomatic process begun by Obama in 2009 stalled, Carter felt it was a propitious moment to provide a catalyst to get things moving again. Word of Carter's trip sparked immediate speculation that he might be on a mission to free Alan Gross. Just a few months earlier, Carter had traveled to North Korea and won the release of a U.S. citizen imprisoned for entering the country illegally. Moreover, many observers thought it unlikely that the Cuban government would have invited Carter, 
or that Carter would have accepted without some expectation that he could obtain Gross's release. But this hope was quickly dashed. The Cuban officials made it very clear to me before I left my home that the freedom of Alan Gross would not be granted. He later revealed. Carter decided to make the trip anyway. It was brief, just three days, half the length of his 2002 trip, but it was a whirlwind of activity. He met with Cardinal Ortega to discuss the Church's dialogue with the government. He visited the Patronato Jewish Center and Temple Beth Shalom to meet with leaders of the Jewish community. He had breakfast with a group of dissidents, former prisoners, and bloggers, including Yoani Sanchez. He also met with relatives of the Cuban Five, and he had a long meeting with Alan Gross. While Cuban officials understood that Washington politics made an explicit exchange of the Cuban Five for Alan Gross problematic, they nevertheless saw the two cases as linked, as Foreign Minister Rodriguez had told Bill Richardson. Each side could simply agree in advance to a release on humanitarian grounds, publicly justified on its own merits, rather than as part of a trade. Carter himself had established the precedent. In 1979, when Carter requested the release of four imprisoned CIA agents, Fidel suggested a parallel release of four Puerto Rican nationalists. Without any formal agreement between the two sides, Carter granted the Puerto Ricans clemency, and Castro released the CIA prisoners. Accompanying Carter on this trip, Bob Pastor, the architect of the 1979 deal, was reminded by Cuban colleagues of the success of the non-trade trade and asked if it could be repeated. Carter spoke twice with Foreign Minister Rodriguez, who argued that Obama's rhetoric about improving relations was belied by escalating U.S. sanctions against international banks doing business with Cuba and the ongoing democracy promotion program. Carter had lunch with National Assembly President Ricardo Alarcón, who briefed him on the economic reforms to be discussed at the upcoming 6th Congress of the Communist Party. He visited Fidel at home, where they reminisced about old times. Carter's meeting with Raul Castro lasted three hours, after which they adjourned for dinner in Colonial Havana. Carter emphasized that Gross's detention was a serious obstacle to improving relations and urged Raul to consider releasing him on humanitarian grounds. Castro demurred, hinting that there was no consensus in the Cuban government about how to handle the Gross case. Raul repeated his oft-stated willingness to engage Washington in wide-ranging talks without preconditions so long as those talks were undertaken on equal terms with full respect for our independence and sovereignty. Any topic could be discussed, he affirmed. We are ready. In both a televised interview and a press conference before his departure, Carter reiterated two themes from his first trip to Cuba in 2002. The United States ought to fully normalize relations with Cuba immediately, and Cuba ought to allow full freedom of speech, assembly, travel. Specifically, he called for an end to the U.S. embargo, removal of Cuba from the terrorism list, release of the Cuban Five, and release of Alan Gross. In response to Carter's statement, Raul Castro quipped, I agree with everything President Carter said. Upon his return to the United States, Carter received a cool reception from the Obama administration. Secretary Clinton gave him a polite hearing, and then the administration returned to business as usual. The day after Carter's return, the administration notified Congress it would request $20 million in new funding for the democracy promotion program that had landed Alan Gross in jail in the first place, the same level of funding requested by the Bush administration. Issues of Mutual Interest Coast Guard Cooperation 
From the outset, a key difference between the Obama and Bush administrations was Obama's willingness to talk to the Cuban government about issues of mutual interest. The decision to resume the migration talks was emblematic of that commitment. Cuba's agenda also included cooperation to counter terrorism and narcotics trafficking. In 2001, shortly after the September 11th terrorist attacks, Cuban diplomats submitted draft agreements on these three issues to the State Department, but the Bush administration never replied. When Obama resumed the migration talks, the Cubans hoped to reopen discussions on these other issues and added disaster preparedness as well. Alan Gross's arrest drastically reduced the possibility of progress, however. Washington was unwilling to engage Cuba very deeply or sign any formal accord while Gross was imprisoned. Topics like migration, counter-narcotics operations, and Coast Guard search and rescue were areas where it behooves us to talk to the Cuban government, the coordinator for Cuban affairs, Peter Brennan, acknowledged, but we've told the Cubans that we will not move on issues X, Y, and Z until Alan Gross is released. Even without formal agreements, there were a few islands of cooperation that could not only be expanded to the benefit of both governments, but also pursued with a very low profile so as not to stir up trouble on Capitol Hill. One was Coast Guard cooperation. The Clinton administration was the first to station a U.S. Coast Guard liaison officer, referred to as the Drug Interdiction Officer, or DIS, at the U.S. Interests Section in Havana. Over time, the relationship between the DIS officers and their Cuban counterparts became increasingly respectful and productive. During the Bush years, when U.S. diplomats were cut off from any communication with the Cuban government, the Coast Guard liaison was the only point of official contact that remained intact. The Cubans routinely used the Coast Guard liaison as an informal channel to convey messages to the U.S. government. In June 2009, during a routine repatriation of Cubans picked up at sea by the U.S. Coast Guard, a Ministry of Foreign Relations official told the U.S. officer that Cuba was interested in using the semi-annual migration talks to open a dialogue on counter-narcotics operations, counter-terrorism, and natural disaster response. He stated that the aforementioned forums for engagement are a launching point, or segue, to further talks on larger issues, Jonathan Farrar reported to Washington. In September, the Cubans used the liaison officer to let the United States know that Cuba might be willing to accept hurricane relief assistance if it were offered, something Cuba had always rejected during the Bush years. Coast Guard cooperation, already the most effective and closest area of U.S.-Cuba engagement, according to Farrar, improved after Obama took office. During Bisa Williams's visit in September 2009, the GOC pushed hard for increased law enforcement cooperation, especially in counter-narcotics, Farrar reported. The top drug fighter at the Interior Ministry, Colonel Jorge Samper, commented that the GOC would like to be able to work more closely with the United States in sharing information about trafficking patterns in the region. In November, U.S. Coast Guard officials met with Cuban counterparts to share technical information on counter-smuggling tactics and procedures. By 2011, increased cooperation had significantly reduced people smuggling and narcotics trafficking in the Florida Strait. A senior regional Coast Guard commander in Florida described cooperation with Cuba on search and rescue and counter-narcotics operations as second to none. Nevertheless, the formal agreement Cuba proposed on counter-narcotics cooperation remained under review, even though the State Department admitted that concluding such an agreement 
could advance the counter-narcotics efforts undertaken by both countries and would likely lead to increased interdictions and disruptions of illegal trafficking. This is the end of the CD. The audiobook continues on the next CD. Law Enforcement Cooperation The Obama administration had an opportunity to review counterterrorism cooperation with Cuba when it tried to bring an infamous terrorist to justice. On January 10, 2011, the U.S. Justice Department finally put Luis Posada Cariles on trial in El Paso. Despite a long career of political violence, blowing up a civilian airliner with 73 passengers in 1976, orchestrating a string of hotel bombings in Havana that wounded 11 people and killed an Italian businessman in 1997, and plotting to blow up an auditorium full of people in order to assassinate Fidel Castro in Panama City in 2000, Posada was prosecuted only for the crimes of immigration fraud and perjury. Nevertheless, at 83 years of age, the trial represented the best chance to put Posada behind bars for the rest of his life. Arrested in Miami in May 2005, Posada was initially incarcerated in El Paso for illegal entry. U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE, went through the motions of trying to deport him, but no country would take him. The United States refused to extradite him to the one country that had a legitimate claim to him, Venezuela, where the bombing of the Cuban airliner was planned. Only after the immigration court decided to release him on bail did ICE officially identify him as a terrorist. Posada's long history of criminal activity and violence in which innocent civilians were killed, ICE wrote, meant that his release from detention would pose a danger to both the community and the national security of the United States. Yet, after holding him for 20 months as a danger, in January 2007, U.S. prosecutors indicted Posada only for making false statements about how he entered the United States. Four months later, Judge Kathleen Cardone dismissed all charges against him and set him free on the grounds that the government had engaged in fraud, deceit, and trickery to gather evidence. Eventually, an appeals court overturned that ruling, and in the spring of 2009, the Justice Department Counterterrorism Division indicted Posada on additional charges for lying about his role in the bombing of Cuba's hotels and discotheques in 1997 and 1998. Prosecuting Posada on those charges required the support of Raul Castro's government. Setting aside their suspicions that the U.S. judicial system appeared to be treating the Osama bin Laden of Latin America with kid gloves, Cuban officials offered substantial cooperation. Teams of Justice Department lawyers and investigators traveled to Havana at least four times to interview witnesses and review evidence. FBI agents were allowed to question and depose Posada's accomplices incarcerated in Cuba. The Cuban government provided video footage of the crime scenes and more than 1,500 pages of investigative reports on the hotel bombings. As the trial progressed into the early spring of 2011, the Cuban government sent two police investigators to El Paso to testify about the forensic evidence they had found. Washington and Havana engaged in an extensive, protracted, and substantive effort to finally bring Luis Posada Cariles to justice and thereby foster broader counterterrorism collaboration. But, like so many other good-faith efforts, this one ended in insult and outrage for the Cubans. After a three-month trial, the El Paso jury took less than three hours to find Posada not guilty on all counts, and he went free. The Cuban Foreign Ministry promptly accused the U.S. government of supporting and sheltering an international terrorist. As Ricardo Alarcón declared, 
The stupid and shameful farce is over. Disaster Diplomacy Natural disasters tend to elicit humanitarian empathy by reminding us that we are all vulnerable in the face of catastrophe, and they create opportunities for cooperation that can build bonds of trust even between adversaries. The earthquake that devastated Port-au-Prince, Haiti, on January 12, 2010, offered an opportunity for Cuba and the United States to cooperate on a purely humanitarian mission to alleviate extraordinary human suffering. The United States moved quickly to provide emergency assistance and to coordinate worldwide offers of relief. Cuba had a well-established medical mission in Haiti of 400 doctors, nurses, and paramedics who immediately began providing emergency aid to the injured. Hundreds more Cuban doctors soon joined them. Cooperation began with Cuba granting U.S. planes the right to fly through Cuban airspace as they evacuated the injured to medical facilities abroad, an offer that garnered a public expression of appreciation from Secretary Clinton. Two high-level diplomatic meetings ensued to discuss ways in which Washington and Havana could extend their cooperation. In January, Secretary Clinton's Chief of Staff, Cheryl Mills, coordinating Haiti relief efforts at State, and Julissa Reynoso, from the Western Hemisphere Affairs Bureau, met in Santo Domingo with senior Cuban foreign ministry and health ministry officials. Two months later, Mills met with Cuban Foreign Minister Bruno Rodriguez in New York at a United Nations donor conference. The discussion, according to Rodriguez, focused on how to rebuild Haiti's health system. Some cooperative activities have taken place between Cuba and the United States in the effort to provide emergency care, he explained, and more were expected to follow. Although no one at the State Department wanted to draw too much attention to it, U.S. relief workers on the ground in Haiti were providing medical supplies to the field hospitals the Cuban doctors set up. Southcom's deputy commander, Lieutenant General Ken Keane, who directed U.S. disaster relief operations in Haiti, was so impressed with the Cuban response that he recommended more sustained, long-term U.S.-Cuban cooperation. We've had an unprecedented level of coordination with Cuba in providing aid to Haiti, Arturo Valenzuela said in October 2010. We've worked very closely with Cuban authorities in Haiti. The bilateral meetings produced an idea for a joint project. The United States would provide $30 million to build a new hospital in rural Haiti to be staffed in part by Cuban medical personnel. The two sides were near agreement when the Cubans asked that in light of this cooperation, Washington end its Cuban medical professional parole program. The program, designed by the Bush administration, had enticed almost 1,600 Cuban doctors and other medical personnel serving abroad into defecting to the United States by promising them automatic entry. After the Obama administration refused to halt the program, Havana proposed that Washington fund a second medical facility in the capital, Port-au-Prince. Again, the administration refused, and the talks broke off. We have not produced any agreements, lamented Jorge Bolaños head of the Cuban Interests section in Washington after a third meeting, but he reaffirmed Cuba's continued willingness to cooperate. The explosion of the Deepwater Horizon oil rig in the Gulf of Mexico on April 20, 2010, focused new attention on U.S.-Cuban environmental cooperation. As the spill spread eastward toward the Florida Strait, experts warned that the Gulf Stream could carry the slick onto Cuba's northern beaches and even to Florida's Atlantic coast. In mid-May, almost a month after the blowout, the State Department formally notified Cuba of the environmental hazard posed by the spill, as required by international law, 
and began low technical bilateral talks about its spread. Havana gave permission for a National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration vessel to enter Cuban waters to monitor the spill. In the end, Cuba's coasts were spared, but the debate over U.S.-Cuban cooperation on energy, oil, and environmental protection was just beginning. The U.S. Geological Survey estimated Cuban oil reserves in the Gulf at about 4.6 billion barrels, enough to make the island a medium-sized exporter. The Cuba government had already leased blocks in the commercial zone for exploration by companies in Russia, China, India, Malaysia, Vietnam, Angola, Norway, Brazil, Venezuela, and Spain. The Deepwater Horizon accident prompted people to ask what would happen if a Cuban well suffered a similar accident. The answers were unsettling. The existing trade embargo prohibits U.S. assistance for containment, cleanup, drilling a relief well, or capping the well, warned Brian Petty from the International Association of Drilling Contractors, the main industry trade association. Absolutely no U.S. resources can be committed to containment or cleanup. As former oil executive Jorge Piñon explained, all the companies cooperate when an accident happens, but not if the accident was at a Cuban well. That's not the case with Cuba, given the embargo. So days would go by as the bureaucratic paperwork was shifted from agency to department, and in the meantime, the oil would be moving towards Key West and South Beach. Piñon argued vigorously for a proactive U.S. approach that would remove all obstacles to an immediate U.S. response in the event of a Cuban accident, including pre-approval of licenses to deploy equipment, technology, and personnel, regular exchanges of scientific and technical information to enhance Cuban safety, and joint U.S.-Cuban exercises to practice containment and cleanup of a spill. The International Association of Drilling Contractors, IADC, echoed Pinon's recommendations. The Obama administration took some small steps toward cooperation. Before the Deepwater Horizon disaster, when the IADC had requested a license to send a delegation to Cuba to discuss offshore drilling safety, the Treasury Department denied it. When IADC reapplied after the accident, the license was granted. Senior Cuban officials told us they are going ahead with their deep-water drilling program, said IADC President Lee Hunt upon his return. They are utilizing every reliable non-U.S. source that they can for technology and information, but they would prefer to work directly with the United States in matters of safe drilling practices. In the low-level technical discussions between U.S. and Cuban officials during the Deepwater Horizon crisis, Cuba proposed a bilateral protocol for cooperation in handling an accident. Cuban diplomats submitted a draft document to the State Department, but no formal agreement resulted. Former Senator Bob Graham of Florida, co-chair of the U.S. National Commission on the BP Deepwater Horizon oil spill, suggested using Mexico as an intermediary to discuss safety standards for drilling in the Gulf. This is not a capitulation to Castro. Rather, it is something in our self-interest to ensure that anything that relates to drilling have high safety standards. Graham's co-chair, William Riley, traveled to Mexico to encourage authorities there to take on the intermediary role. But when the Department of the Interior hosted a 12-nation conference in April 2011 on the lessons learned from the Deepwater Horizon accident, Cuba was excluded, even though Secretary Ken Salazar acknowledged that the prospect of imminent drilling in Cuban waters was an issue of concern. Michael Bromwich, director of the U.S. Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, Regulation, and Enforcement, agreed that reaching an agreement with Cuba on safety standards 
would certainly be desirable. However, he added, finding the mechanism to do that is tricky and needs to be explored further. The administration refused to directly engage with Cuba to formulate a coordinated response plan of the sort that the Coast Guard had developed with Mexico in the Caribbean and Russia in the Aleutians. The tricky mechanism the administration settled on was to deal indirectly with Cuba under the cover of multinational initiatives. This, officials seemed to hope, would provide a margin of safety for the environment while blunting the political furor that would result from engaging the Cubans directly. In December 2011, U.S. officials participated in a multilateral conference with delegations from the Bahamas, Jamaica, Mexico, and Cuba to discuss offshore drilling safety. U.S. participants were impressed with the Cuban delegation's professionalism and the country's emergency spill response plan, according to the trade publication Oil Daily. The meeting concluded with an agreement that each government would compile and share an authorities matrix, identifying the officials responsible for various aspects of safety, regulation, and accident response. By early 2013, both Cuba and the United States had submitted their matrices. In April 2012, another multilateral meeting conducted a tabletop response exercise based on a hypothetical accident at a Cuban well. The Cuban delegation discussed notification protocols and the facilitation of international assistance and expressed its willingness to share with the United States its safety plans on future deepwater drilling. The two delegations met together informally during the conference. On the U.S. side, the Coast Guard was assigned to take the lead in managing any offshore spill in the Caribbean and was given the necessary licenses from the Department of the Treasury to work directly with the Cuban government. The Department of Commerce began licensing firms in advance to transfer equipment and expertise to Cuba in the event of an accident. I'm confident that once we get through this process, the United States will be able to respond to an accident quickly, Coordinator for Cuban Affairs Peter Brennan affirmed. Industry professionals were less sanguine about the adequacy of this strategy. Paul Schuler from Clean Caribbean, which had already run the gauntlet of getting a license from the Treasury Department, had his doubts. Coping with a major spill would require drawing on resources from dozens of companies, he pointed out. Most would not have pre-approved licenses. They would have to go through the licensing process, which, in my experience, has not been quick. Bill Richardson Rides Again After he failed to win Alan Gross's release on his 2010 trip to Cuba, Governor Bill Richardson did not give up hope. He stayed in touch with Ambassador Bolaños at the Cuban Interests Section in Washington, and on June 20, 2011, Bolaños called to invite Richardson to meet with him at the Cuban mission. According to Richardson's aide, Gilbert Gallegos, Bolaños read the governor a diplomatic note that basically said that after the judicial process ended, the Cubans were ready to talk to him about Gross. The ambassador urged Richardson to hold off on another trip to the island until the Cuban Supreme Court ruled on Gross's appeal. After the court upheld Gross's 15-year sentence on August 5th, Bolaños and Richardson met for lunch to discuss plans for a trip in September. Richardson left convinced that the purpose of his trip was to begin a dialogue about the terms on which Gross might be released. We were going to negotiate, Richardson recalled. There was not a commitment that I would get Gross, but that we would talk about it. Before Richardson departed for Havana, State Department officials briefed him on the status of the Gross case and gave him a list of ten things the United States was prepared to do to improve relations if Gross was pardoned. 
The list covered a range of issues of interest to Havana, but most were framed as possibilities rather than pledges. Washington would review Cuba's inclusion on the State Department's list of state sponsors of terrorism. It would reduce but not eliminate USAID's democracy promotion program and change it in unspecified ways. It would look at the possibility of allowing U.S. companies to invest in Cuba's telecommunications infrastructure. It would seek to restore Cuba's ownership of the Havana Club trademark, which U.S. courts had awarded to Bacardi. It would seek the extradition of Luis Posada Cariles, wanted in Venezuela and Cuba for terrorist bombings. And it would encourage the Department of Justice to allow René González, the one member of the Cuban Five who had completed his prison sentence, to return home rather than forcing him to stay in Florida on parole for three more years. The items on Richardson's list that were promised unequivocally were, for the most part, things the administration had already publicly announced as U.S. policy, restoring postal relations, allowing U.S. companies to provide spill mitigation services to Cuba's offshore oil drilling rigs, and vetoing congressional efforts to roll back Obama's policy of allowing unlimited Cuban-American family travel. The one new item was a pledge to end the program encouraging Cuban doctors abroad to defect, which would have cleared the way for cooperation in Haiti. Richardson understood the tenuous nature of the U.S. list. There was no deal that if Gross is released, we will do these things, he acknowledged. Rather, what Washington was offering was not a commitment, but a process. You give us Alan Gross, and we can talk about a number of issues. Richardson's September trip got off to a bad start when he leaked word of it to Wolf Blitzer at CNN, who reported that the governor was invited by the Cuban government for the specific mission of trying to negotiate the release of Gross. To the Cubans, this looked like an attempt to force their hand. I think maybe the Cubans felt a little pressured by all the press attention, Richardson admitted later, acknowledging his misstep. During his meeting in Cuba with Foreign Minister Rodriguez, Richardson presented the State Department's list of things that could happen if Gross was released and told Rodriguez that a military plane was standing by in Florida to take Gross home. The foreign minister did not react well to the list or to Richardson's presumptuousness. Rodriguez told me three things, Richardson recalled. One, you won't get Gross. Two, you won't see Raul. And three, you won't even see Gross. Is that it? Richardson asked. Yes, this is it. I'll have to talk with the press, Richardson warned, in light of all the hype surrounding his trip. You do what you have to do, Rodriguez replied evenly. When the foreign minister reported to his subordinates how badly the meeting had gone, they convinced him to reconsider his decision to deny Richardson a meeting with Gross. Almost every U.S. visitor who asked was being allowed to see Gross. It would be an enormous insult to bar Richardson. But as Vice Minister Dagoberto Rodriguez was on his way to tell Richardson that he could see Alan Gross after all, he received word of Richardson's statement to the press. Richardson left his meeting with Rodriguez angry and puzzled. The Cubans had invited him to discuss releasing Gross, and now that he was here, with negotiating terms, they would not even talk to him. That evening, he vented his frustration to Associated Press reporter Paul Haven at the Hotel Nacional. My mission here as a private citizen is to secure the release of Alan Gross, an American hostage, he said. I've been informed by the Cuban government that I would not be allowed to see Alan Gross during my visit. The following day, Richardson held a press conference at the hotel, declaring that he would not leave Cuba until he was allowed to see Gross. 
Calling Gross a hostage effectively ended Richardson's mission. The Cuban foreign ministry issued a press statement declaring that Alan Gross's release was never on the table and that this had been made clear to Richardson as soon as he raised it. Richardson's request to see Gross became impossible due to his slanderous statements to the press in which he described Gross as a hostage of the Cuban government and his attempt to pressure by affirming publicly that he would not leave Cuba until he had achieved this goal. We explained to Mr. Richardson that Cuba is a sovereign country which does not accept blackmail, pressure, or posturing. Despite Richardson's vow to stay in Cuba until he was allowed to visit the prisoner, Cuban officials would have nothing more to do with him. After a few days, he gave up and came home. I am very disappointed and surprised, he told reporters on his departure. Unfortunately, after this negative experience, I don't know if I could return here as a friend. Back in Washington, Richardson lamented, This dramatic snub of me, on air with Wolf Blitzer. I'm still scratching my head because I was invited by the Cubans. Richardson mused. My message to the Cubans was, Look, I'm a private citizen. I'm not representing the administration. But if you free Alan Gross, a whole host of issues that you disagree with the United States can be discussed. Human rights, environmental, commercial. And they shut the door. Therein lay the problem. As a private citizen, Richardson could promise nothing that would bind the Obama administration. Indeed, as Richardson sat in his hotel room hoping to eventually see Alan Gross, President Obama reiterated the governor's lack of authority to deal. Richardson is acting as a private citizen on a humanitarian mission to try to free Gross, the president told reporters. Anything to get Mr. Gross free we will support although Mr. Richardson does not represent the U.S. government in his actions there. The list of potential U.S. actions itself was poorly framed. If Cuba released Gross, the United States would consider things, or attempt to do things, or open talks about doing things. But there was precious little that Washington promised to actually do. The Cubans had heard promises like this many times before. If only they would make concessions up front on an issue of interest to the United States, better relations would follow. More than once, the Cubans had taken the deal, but never did they see any payoff. Fidel Castro freed U.S. prisoners in 1963 after hints that their release could lead to a process of reconciliation. He ended the 1980 Mariel migration crisis when Washington promised broader bilateral talks. He signed the 1984 Migration Accord when U.S. negotiators suggested that Cuban concessions would lead to better relations. Cuba contributed to a diplomatic settlement in southern Africa in exchange for an explicit U.S. promise that Havana's cooperation would open the door to wider talks, and Castro ended the 1994 rafters migration crisis when President Clinton promised negotiations on the embargo. In none of these cases did the United States make good on its commitment. A non-binding, informal proposal from a private citizen who himself admitted he could not make a firm commitment was not, for the Cubans, a credible offer. A Second-Term President In 1994, Fidel Castro told a group of former U.S. ambassadors that he needed a two-term U.S. president to normalize relations with Cuba because no first-term president would have the political courage to do it. Barack Obama's surprisingly strong showing among Cuban Americans in the 2012 election positioned him well to be that president. Obama won half the Cuban-American vote in Florida, far more than any Democrat before him. His success resulted from a realignment among Cuban-Americans, rather than just Mitt Romney's weakness, 
A decade of polling by Florida International University, FIU, chronicled gradual attitudinal changes in the Cuban-American community, changes that finally began to manifest themselves in voting behavior. When FIU began polling in 1991, 87% of respondents favored continuing the embargo. By 2011, support had fallen to 56%. In 1993, 75% opposed the sale of food to Cuba and 50% opposed the sale of medicine. By 2011, solid majorities, 65 and 75% respectively, supported both. These changes in attitude were produced by demographic shifts. Exiles who arrived in the United States in the 1960s and 1970s came as political refugees opposed to the socialist direction of the revolution. Those who arrived in the Marielle exodus of 1980 and after were more likely to have left for economic reasons and were far more likely to retain ties with family on the island and favor better U.S.-Cuban relations. At first, these attitudinal changes did not manifest themselves at the polls, where the early arrivals composed a disproportionately larger share of the Cuban-American electorate. Over 90% of those who arrived before 1985 were registered to vote. For those who arrived after the end of the Cold War, the registration rate was only 60%, if they were citizens. But with every passing year, the cohort of early exiles became a smaller proportion of the community as natural mortality took its toll and new immigrants arrived at the rate of some 30,000 annually. Obama's success in Florida, and the fact that he would not have to stand for re-election, gave him more freedom of action on Cuba than any president in recent decades. Yet many of the same forces that prevented Obama from taking a truly new approach to U.S.-Cuban relations during his first term were still operative. Opponents like Marco Rubio, Republican of Florida, and Robert Menendez in the Senate were still determined to fight a legislative guerrilla war against the president's Cuba policy by holding up nominations and threatening to filibuster must-pass legislation in order to block any new initiative. Major policy changes that require a significant expenditure of political capital rarely happen unless the urgency of the problem forces policymakers to act. At first, it seemed like the president was intent on trying to resume the forward momentum of Cuba policy. His new Secretary of State, John Kerry, had tried to reform USAID's democracy promotion program toward Cuba when he served in the Senate, and the new Secretary of Defense, Chuck Hagel, had called the U.S. embargo an outdated, unrealistic, irrelevant policy. In private, senior administration officials expressed their desire for an opening to Cuba, but lamented the tricky politics of the issue and the demands of other priorities. Alan Gross's imprisonment had impaled the administration on the horns of a dilemma. U.S. officials wanted to get Gross out of jail for humanitarian reasons, but also because his imprisonment blocked movement on issues of mutual interest. To move on these issues while Gross remained behind bars would invite conservative charges of appeasement. At the same time, administration officials could not bring themselves to acknowledge publicly that Gross had done anything wrong. By insisting on Gross's innocence, the administration gave fuel to conservative charges that Gross was a hostage, making it harder to broker a deal with Havana to win his release. Alan Gross himself realized that U.S.-Cuban relations were mired down over his incarceration and would have to improve before he had any chance of freedom. During a four-hour meeting with author Peter Kornblue just days after Obama's re-election, Gross suggested that Washington and Havana sit down and talk talkless, truthfully, without preconditions, 
and sign a non-belligerency pact as a step toward normalization. Once there was a momentum to advance bilateral ties, he said, Washington and Havana could address and resolve his case. Early in the second term, the Obama White House initiated some quiet, below-the-radar actions to see if it could find a way out of the corner into which it had painted itself. In May, the Department of Justice dropped its opposition to allowing René González, a member of the Cuban Five, to serve out his probation in Cuba rather than forcing him to remain in Miami. Shortly thereafter, Cuba granted Alan Gross's request to be examined by his own doctor. In May, the Cuban foreign ministry official in charge of relations with the United States, Josefina Vidal, met with Assistant Secretary of State for Western Hemisphere Affairs, Roberta Jacobson. While their conversation covered a range of issues, they spent much of the time discussing Alan Gross. Shortly thereafter, the State Department announced the resumption of bilateral talks on immigration, suspended since January 2011 because of Gross's arrest, and talks on the re-establishment of direct postal service. Working-level diplomats were given a green light to make progress where possible on issues of mutual interest. The two sides quickly resolved most points of disagreement on a postal accord, a Coast Guard search-and-rescue accord, and an oil spill containment protocol, though the U.S. side was loath to use the word agreement, lest it stir up trouble in Congress.